VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, August the 14th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing to get the week off to flying start. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance. 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I don't know if you live anywhere where the sky was clear enough last night to take in what is probably one of the two nights of peak preceded meteor showers, the annual event, and I've seen some pictures from other parts of the country. It was absolutely spectacular, but another good night available here for peak viewing for that particular meteor shower. All right, quick soccer roundup. The Breen's Jubilee, Holy Cross, for the eighth year in a row, have taken that prestigious title. Of course, they're defending national champions. Off they go to defend their national title, so congratulations to Holy Cross. And on the men's side, throughout the entirety of the season, Holy Cross were undefeated. They only had a couple of draws, and that was at the hands of the Felians. And the Felians beat them uh, yesterday in extra time 1-0 to take the Challenge Cup, the Johnson's Challenge Cup, for only the second time since 1969. I had a little look at some of the champions over the years. First competed for 1950, I believe, and the club with the most Challenge Cup titles? The St. Lawrence Laurentians. And followed behind them is Holy Cross Football Club with 22. Well, St. Lawrence had 29, Holy Cross with 22. And on the townie side, when you add in the Felians and the Guards and the St. John's All-Stars and the St. John's St. Pat's, only one handful uh, compared to the rest of the clubs around the province behind St. Lawrence and Holy Cross with 29 and 22 respectively the guards with four that's the next closest so congratulations to all hands participating in the Jubilee and the Challenge Cup over the weekend saw this story I thought it was pretty great so we've been talking about forecasted numbers regarding dementia and the most common form of Alzheimer's, pardon me, uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And so these preparations need to be afforded to families and people who are diagnosed currently and the forecasted numbers, which are huge across the country and certainly in this province. There's a ping pong tournament out of the Paradise Rotary Youth Community Center on Saturday, raising money all for Alzheimer's research. So about 50 people took place. They were thinking they'd probably get 30 players, so they overshot that by a wide margin, organized by the Newfoundland Labrador Table Tennis Association and Jeremy Lair, one of their executives, and Ontario-based TT Foeba. They met, the two organizations met at the Canada Summer Games on PEI, and they came up with this idea to have this type of ping ping pong championship. So... The 50 players put in 20 bucks each and made any donation that they care to offer. And then the fellow who won it all, Nichols Hiscock, he won 100 bucks for the top prize. He put it back into the pot. They raised somewhere between $1,000 and $2,000 for Alzheimer's research. So that's the second of three that are going to happen across the country. One that's already taken place was in Ontario. The next one, BC, in September. A little ping pong. I used to play a bit of ping pong. I haven't had a game in years. Anyway, we've told you not so long ago that St. John's native Abby Newhook and Leah Wicks and Maggie Connors were all at the Team Canada camps in St. Catharines, Ontario. Abby's going to continue on. She's made the uh, the development roster. They're going down to Lake Placid to take on the Americans in a three-game set. So congratulations to Abby. Well, where in the old maple leaf is no small potato, so good for her. All of the games between the under-18s and the National Women's Development Team going to be playing at the Herb Brooks Arena in Lake Placid. Of course, Herb Brooks, Herb Brooks was the name, the, pardon me, the person who was the head coach of the American Ice gold medal winning team in 1980 when the Americans shocked the hockey world. So congratulations, Abby. Go get it. 
and fastest man on the planet. There's only one man's ever won the marquee event in the Summer Olympics three times for the men's 100 meters, Usain Bolt. When he started in 2016, the Jamaican uh, ran a 9.81 at the Rio Games. First and only person to win the 100 meters three times. All right, I'll bring up this story because it kind of came out of nowhere. And these kinds of stories intrigue me because we do indeed have a lot of the same massive concerns that we absolutely should be talking about. But there's been a bunch of things happening and a bunch of shortages that came to pass because of the bloody pandemic. And one such area was in lifeguards. I mean, most of the facilities were shut down. People who were lifeguards moved on. But the nationwide shortage is not being felt in all places St. Anthony. They actually have a community of 2,200 people. They've got seven full-time certified lifeguards and two more with the Bronze Cross were able to help out. So while the country struggles to offer the swimming lessons and extended hours and the safe environment you require when you go to a public pool, St. Anthony's got its called with seven and two more sitting in the wings. And they are crediting uh, Scott Koish, he's the recreation director, basically recruiting the lifeguards from the swim team. And now they're able to offer exactly what I just mentioned, extended hours, more swimming lessons, and summer camps, and a safe facility. So I thought that story was pretty great. Nationwide shortage, not so much in the Great Northern Peninsula. And we see after a long time of preparation out of the Port of Argentia, they've received the first delivery of the monopiles as the foundations for the massive wind turbines. They're very likely, shouldn't put the cart in front of the horse, or the horse out in front of this cart because I don't have any authority or inside info, but Pattern Energy has a project slated to begin on the Port of Argentia's uh, footprint. No crown land involved, so quite likely with their experience and the fact they don't need crown lands are probably going to proceed in that area. The Port of Argentia has been super aggressive trying to expand revenue generation opportunities. And this laydown yard and the transit route was the first of its kind in North America. So when we talk about that industry in its infancy and the want to get out in front, I don't know what the business model looks like long term, but as long as we get what is due to us with access to our water and land and ports, business model is really the concern of the company, the proponent themselves. But anyway, the Port of Argentina is just the first step towards what would very likely be massive opportunities for the port. So good on everyone at the port as they prepare for next stage. All right, stick with ports and what happens in the ports. This one is about cod. It was always going to be predictable that with a six-week tie-up and the delay in starting the snow crab fishery, there was going to be a problem with other species, and notably that's cod. The snow crab harvest has been extended till the end of the month, and folks out there with the cod license and the cod quota can't find anywhere to sell it, for the most part. So trying to come up with ways, and I've heard from a bunch of different cod harvesters over the weekend via email, voicing their very clear frustration, out there catching their quota, and nowhere to sell it. So they're trying to streamline it with restaurants and or just selling fillets on the side of the road and a variety of issues. But, you know, there was one looming question that was posed by a harvester on this program last week. Is you know, bringing in his cod, trying to sell it to the local plantry who's been selling it for years, just to be told we're not buying it. And asking this other particularly odd question, or making the statement, is if you don't have a crab license selling crab to that plant, they're not going to be interested in buying your cod anyway. So, you know, these complications is where an industry that's plagued with the annual kerfuffle that we see and we talk about year over year, this one was predictable. So how we avoid this in the future is going to be massive. But if you're a plant owner and or a cod harvester want to describe the circumstances you're facing with your product, we're happy to take you on. I know I mentioned Pattern Energy. It would be interesting to know where we are in next stage, next wave of companies moving one step closer to 
maybe developing that industry here in the province. I know controversial in some corners, but some communities are really quite optimistic and bullish on the potential to see their community with the creation of jobs and the access and the traffic and activity in their port to be what would be a godsend for many of those communities. All right. You know, we see some of the numbers coming from the province and regarding health care. Oh, and coincidentally, let me start that again. I read an article this morning in the wee hours of the morning when I woke up way too early. It was about overeducated and underachievers, maybe with a diploma or a degree that hasn't manifested itself into real-world, real-life opportunities. So we know full well there's opportunities in healthcare. If you're so inclined, even though we hear the message of the concerns of healthcare professionals, and you know it as well as I do, they talk about the stress and the burnout and the work-life balance and all the rest of it. For high school students who are interested in the various health professions, there is going to be a virtual event coming up on the 22nd of this month from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. So if someone in your family, a high school student, is looking at the potential to work in the healthcare field, whether it be as a doctor, a nurse, a pharmacist, uh, involving human kinetics, social work, psychology, this might be a great opportunity for you to get a little bit more information about what that's going to look like if you are so inclined. So it's the MedQuest virtual event. You can go through Memorial University to set up and to get some more details as to what's happening. And even when we talk about the numbers the province put forward, you know, it's 40 additional doctors and 170 nurses, which includes registered nurses and nurse practitioners and LPNs since the 1st of April. It was late last week, Thursday or Friday, I can't remember. But inside 30-minute window, we saw the staffing shortages has impacted healthcare facilities, emergency rooms in six notable areas. The Lewisport Health Center and the... Uh, at the Guy Memorial Health Center in Buckins and the Jean Kittywake Health Center in New West Valley, Harbor Breton's Conagra Peninsula Health Center, Bayver Peninsula Healthcare Center, Fogo Island Healthcare Center, all with complications regarding their emergency rooms and or the entirety of their offerings. So while we see, we don't really know exactly what the gain is because we don't know how many people have left, healthcare professionals, and or how many have retired, but they're claiming it's a net gain. Okay. As long as we're moving forward, I guess that is the quote-unquote good news, but at the exact same time, inside a 30-minute window, six important healthcare clinics and their emergency rooms had to close, you know, scheduled to reopen early this week, what have you. So if you're one of those communities and you were told it would be reopened today and it has not, we're happy to take you on. All right, a couple of industry notes. We all know that the Terranova FPSO is now headed back to the field. You know, there's some congratulatory business going on, but, you know, we've got skin in that game. I think also, interestingly, when we talk about other players in our offshore, Equinor. Equinor has actually secured the Hercules semi-submersible to do some exploration out in the Sitka field in the Flemish Pass next year. They've used that rig many, many times, but people are wondering what the future of that industry looks like, and maybe even job opportunities, and or importantly for many, is the flow of revenues to the provincial coffers. But the Hercules is coming back to explore with Equinor for Equinor next year. All right. I know it's kind of aggravating to talk about back to school when we're still trying to enjoy the last throws of summer, but it's around the corner. And some of the ones that we knew were going to be a problem. Now, there's some good news for many parents inside the 124 schools, some 4,000 students who live in that family responsibility zone you will be able to hop on the bus. Still going to be some serious controversy and commentary associated with the high school announced for Portugal Cove St. Phillips as opposed to Paradise, which has been number one on the list for a long, long time. And I know this might not be an impact to, I don't know how many or what percentage of the listeners, but... 
the world of donations is down and the demand is up for something that seems so fundamental it's just back to school supplies you know whether it be scribblers and coloring leads and all the normal stuff and a geometry set a new backpack maybe a new pair of pants or dungarees or whatever you're allowed to wear at school but for so many families, including one notable portion of the news story I read, is there was eight families in particular who were sponsoring other children last year who are now on the list of needy. So it's tough times out there. If you're working in a not-for-profit or a charity, trying to come up with the monies to offer the programs and services has been harder than ever before. But even when we talk about initiatives like a VOCM Cares with Block the Bus, and or if you want to go through Neighbors in Need, and or Bridges of Hope, or wherever, you know, it would be a crying shame to know just how many young children going back to school don't have the absolute basics in their backpack. So... I'm going to keep bringing it up on this show because I encourage you to go to the VOCM Cares website, find out where some of the most needy uh, issues are regarding whether it be scribblers or whatever. So we're all going to have to do whatever we can. If you are so inclined and if you have the capacity or the resources to get involved, it's going to be a problem this year. I've got a funny feeling. I mentioned this in a quick hit with Jerry Lynn Mackey, a tee-up uh, during the VOCM Morning Show this morning. During the course of the summer, many of you probably, or maybe, took the opportunity to get out of Dodge to travel. And we know the concerns that it comes with. But this is the most recent numbers coming from the airline industry and their profitability here in Canada. They focus in on Air Canada. In the second quarter, ending at the end of June, they had show a profit of $838 million. Operating revenues in, those three, in that three-month period was up to $5.43 billion, up from $3.98 in the same period a year ago. All right, so they are showing extraordinary profits. The planes are full, the ticket prices are huge, relatively low cost of fuel, but when they do the comparisons across the 10 biggest airlines in North America, this is just simply not great. So there's a, a research group that does this type of evaluation and produces the results, and it's called Sirium. Uh, Ranked Air Canada in last place amongst the 10 biggest airlines in North America for on-time performance in July. Less than 52% of the airline's flights during that month were on time. When we talk about the other big airline in this country, WestJet, they're seventh on the list. They were on time 62% of the time. Compare and contrast with the leaders in that group, Alaska Airlines and Delta, 82 and 78% respectively. So, you know, there's got to be better. And I know some people working in the airline industry and they really get their back up when we bring it up, but that's just too bad. I mean, I did my part. I booked the ticket. Now it's upon you and the problems lie with you. I bought the ticket. You need to satisfy my travel plans. Now, there's always going to be potential for delays, especially when it's as busy as it is. More people are traveling now than ever since the pandemic began. International travel numbers are way up. And we know the province is trying to work towards establishing international routes, whether it be to the UK or down to New York or New Jersey, whatever the case may be. But our airlines are just not keeping up with the demand. You can tell me that you've done what you can to hire the complement of staff required and the pilot shortage and all the rest. But if you recognize there's a shortage of whatever, mechanics or pilots or otherwise, adjust your schedule. You know, how many frustrated Canadians have been part of that 52% of flights that were delayed? How can that possibly be okay in a, you know, a country like this with the expensive geography they need to serve? And yes, international travel numbers are apparently are way up, but if you want to take it on, let's go. And last one before we get to your call. You know, I think you got some headlines and some minimal conversation, 
But when we started with the story regarding the vacancy rates inside the RCMP, and it was worse in the country, and then uh, quickly announced that there's going to be an expansion of the Royal New Flank Constabulary to different parts of the West Coast. You know, for many, I think police are police, right? You just need that police presence for everything from speeding all the way to more serious crime. The questions are still looming about how can that be taken care of adequately? You know, you certainly the RNC can do it, but knowing you can do it with training and your history and all the rest of it and the familiarity that the province will have with the RNC, it still requires their human resources to pull it off. You know, people have built-in worries. Some of it is founded in sensational headline-grabbing content, but the numbers are still real. You know, the crime severity index is up some 6% in the province. It's terrible here. It's up some 19%, and we can get into that, whether it be specific neighborhoods or problem areas on the Northeast Avalon or anywhere in the province, but yes, this is good. Be great to have the chief on. Chief Roach, and or the Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan, to get a little further into the details. I know they're talking about a full year of transition be- before this becomes full practice, but still, when people think about police presence and the worries that have been voiced for many, many years, sure, I'm, absolutely, this can be done safely, properly, and adequately. We just need a bit more detail to fill in some of the blanks. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. Let's get off to a roaring start. That means you have to pick up the phone, speak with David, get in the queue and on the air. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program, the boys and girls of summer. Hey, join us on line number two is the baseball NL executive director. That's Ryan Garland. Good morning, Ryan. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Happy to have you on. It seems like it's been a bang up year in baseball this year. Yeah, it has. I mean, the weather certainly helped, much like last year. Um, doing really well with registrations across the province and getting some good uh, some good gameplay and, and tournaments and stuff in so far, so it's great to see. Yeah, we know baseball day in Newfoundland Labrador back on the 5th of August was a roaring success. And just over this past weekend, maybe flew under the radar, given some of the, uh, the provincial soccer championships or whatnot. We hosted the 21U Women's National Down at St. Pat's. How'd that turn out? It was a great weekend. I've had some weather issues, unfortunately, on uh, Thursday and Friday. I'm sorry, Thursday and Saturday. But uh, it was a great weekend overall. The teams that were here really, really enjoyed their time. So how does it come to pass that we get to host national events here? Is this they just sprinkle it around on a forecasted calendar from Baseball Canada? Or do we have to work as advocates to bring these tournaments here? How does that uh, work out? No, you've got to apply through Baseball Canada, so you want to try to, I mean, do something every two years if you can. We had this event last year as well, uh, so this is our second year hosting the event. But again, you you have to apply to Baseball Canada every year. The tournaments are open for a bid process. Usually Baseball Canada awards them in two-year cycles. This year is our last year of this event. We've been looking to host an event next year, but unfortunately with some of the COVID cancellations over the last two years, 2020 and 2021, there's a bit of a backlog to honor some previous contracts. So looking to see what we can do next year, if anything, in advance of the 25 summer games, but that's still a work in progress. I was going to ask you about the 25 summer games. What does that mean? Because it's one thing to be a host site, quite another to have the prep time, the lead time, bring in the type of coaching and competition to really ensure that we're ready to go. Are there any plans, especially for next summer, to get some of that more intense competition to be actually fully prepared for the games? Yeah, so both of our Canada Games programs are, are in their infancies right now in terms of the, the current cycles. We've got our 
our training pool of both our athletes, male and female, now that the girls are up to 25, our training pools are both identified and, and working on their their plans for the next two, two and a half years, whatever that ends up being. Uh, some out of province, out of, out of country competition is definitely on the table for both programs and coaching development. Also working on some officials development as well because we'll have to have uh, officials representing the province at both events, especially with the female officials. There's a, a bit of a push to have Certainly not a, I can't say an all-female umpire crew because that may not come to fruition, but certainly a predominantly female umpire crew would like to be represented there as well. So we're working on pushing all areas of, uh, of the program from players, coaches, officials, top to bottom. And you, know, you mentioned the female baseball, and we know Jada Lee is going to be part of the national team this go-around. You know, when you, you really need to see people achieving great things, whether it be young hockey players, whether it be Abby Newhook or Alex Newhook. And same thing inside of baseball. What do you think the long-term impact will be of Jada Lee? You know, breaking that gra- glass ceiling and playing with the boys at the games, now playing with the national team. I mean, it's making some huge strides forward. Do you see already, or what do you forecast will be the trickle-down to impact other young girls to see baseball as a sport they want to play? Well, I think the best uh, – first thing, it's a great question, Patty. I think the, I think the best trickle-down effect is what we saw last night at the championship game for those who who were around. You know, we had Ontario and Quebec playing in the championship game of, of the tournament, the 21U Women's uh, Nationals, but we also – had a lot of young girls around the ballpark, whether it be fat girls for the teams that were in town or some of St. John's or Paradise or Mount Pearl's uh, girls in their program. And a player like Jada, or before Jada, Heather Healy, uh, those, those right. types of, of players would, would give those girls the opportunity to go look across the diamond and say, if I keep with it, I can be one of those someday. So I think that's the biggest long-term impact is someone like Jada, who this past week has been in Thunder Bay with the senior women's national team, and they just punched their ticket to the World Cup. Uh, that gives a girl from here who may or may not think they can do it, that gives them the drive to want to try to do it. So I think that's the biggest spinoff of having something like Jada happen, I guess. Yeah, the teams that punched their ticket were the States and Canada yesterday, so that's great news. And I, I think Jada's going to be a big deal when we talk about the future of baseball, especially on the women's side here in the province. So actually, the female baseball was the feature on Blues Jays Central yesterday before the Cubbies game. So it's part of the conversation, and rightfully so. Oh, definitely. I, I, I will be the first to say that our our female registration has been the biggest area of growth in the province for probably the last four or five years. And it's it's a widely untapped registration market, I guess I'll say, across the country. Certain provinces do a better job than others. I think we do one of the best jobs in the country. If I can plug our, our program a little bit, I do think our female program is, is one of the top-end programs in the, in the country. And I, when other provinces get to a level where they're doing things with female baseball it will be beneficial for the country moving forward the last weekend of august brings to an end this year of minor baseball i want to throw out a, a few thank yous to people because it's one thing to lead the pack as the executive director but a lot of moving parts whether it be with your officials and parents and players and coaches and managers and other staffers it takes a lot of folks to pull off a baseball season no, you're definitely right. I mean, our volunteer base, if you don't have that, you have nothing really in, in modern sports. I think everyone recognizes that. Uh, specifically from this weekend, I think I'd like to, not I think, that's not fair to say, but uh, Mark Healy with the host committee, he's the chair. He also coached up a Rachel team. Uh, the volunteer base they had, truly phenomenal. Um, just then getting down to our grassroots level with our other programs and associations. Again, you need a dedicated volunteer base. I can I can sit in my chair in my office and do everything, but without those volunteers, it's impossible. So with them, without them, we don't have sports. So I guess a blanket thank you to all our volunteers. Without naming names. 
Yeah, and I shouldn't cut the season short, of course. extends through the middle of September when we talk about some of the Atlantics, which, of course, we will host at least one. If I remember correctly, it was the uh, AAA 11Us are going to be out in Cornerbrook. And, of course, we've got a bunch of provincial championships coming up. Uh, appreciate the time, Ryan. I've got a soft spot for a bit of baseball here, and I'm glad you joined us this morning. Oh, no sweat, Patty. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Ryan Garland. He's the Executive Director of Baseball NL. Okay, let's go to line number one. Connie, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Uh, thanks for calling me. Um, I wanted to uh, just reiterate, and I guess you did too, um, the message that I sent along about the number of child abuse cases in our court system this month. Um, I assume that's why. Well, yeah, you sent me the note, so that's why we followed up, yes. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, In any event, uh, what I sent you was a listing of the charges in all our courts in Newfoundland for the rest of August. I went into search on Friday. Unfortunately, I didn't start my search at the first of the month because uh, they don't show you retroactively the days. So I started on Friday. So basically, it's 15 court days, 15 days. And there were 178 charges uh, of various types of child abuse infractions Um, and 39 different offenders. Um, I'd also like to tell people that the types of charges included in this 178 total for 15 days are sexual interference, sexual assault, invitation to sexual touching, displaying sexually explicit material to a child, luring by means of a computer, exposing genital organs to a person under 16, unlawfully obtaining sex services from a person under 18, corrupting children, possessing child pornography, accessing child pornography, sexual exploitation, distribution of child pornography, failing to provide the necessities of life, bestiality in the presence of a child, and incest. This is just a mirror for 15 days. It's it's staggering. The... These types of subjects are obviously very difficult to talk about. Consequently, because people find this to be very uncomfortable and potentially scary when we're talking about how we discuss these types of issues with our own children, it's probably kept the conversation away from where it needs to be. Well, you know, because we don't have to scare people. We just have to inform people. There's a long way between being afraid and being aware. I do think some of these conversations really have had a hard time getting going. And consequently, you just write it off a litany of charges that in some arenas may be avoided if we are better informed and understand the alarm bells that go off in our belly. Notice what the red flags are, what to do about them, because if you don't arm people with the info, if you don't arm our children with the awareness, then unfortunately those long lists of charges will be the feature, be the norm, not the exception. I couldn't agree more. We've been trying to sound the alarm bells, and if these numbers and types of offenses over a 15-day period don't, you know, send that alarm bells uh, ringing for other people, then we have a bigger problem than we imagined. And I do believe a portion of this is exactly what you said. People don't think it really affects them. They bury their heads in the sand. They're not aware. But we're not talking about these issues and these numbers enough, Patty. If 
I go into court dockets. Uh, you know, that's all you have to do is search on Google court dockets NL, and it will show you uh, each courtroom in the province. You can select the area where you are. You can put in a time frame, and you can go in there and search and see every different type of charge. You can see the names of the people who have been charged, because, of course, they're not publicized unless a person is charged with an offense. So, you know, if you want to know more about what's going on in your area, then you should do that. But I don't think hiding these numbers, they, that doesn't do a thing for informing people, educating people, creating the kind of awareness that is desperately needed in this province. Right now, you know, Miles for Smiles Foundation, Bev Moore Davis and I, and along with other people on the committee, Tom Davis, we have been lobbying for the body safety program in schools. Just imagine if we had a program that taught children more about body safety, how to keep themselves safe, how to tell someone, what to tell someone, when they should tell someone, all of those dynamics. If we had that in place and we're the only province in the country right now that doesn't have that, but if we had that program, just imagine how these numbers, these 178 numbers, offenses with 39 offenders in 15 days could have been decreased. It's really quite something. And, you know, we can talk about shielding and sheltering our children. And, you know, if you don't put them in so-called potentially dangerous situations, maybe nothing bad will happen to them. But please also remind yourself that you can be at home in the safety of your own home and the potential to be victimized is right there at your fingertips, right there on their computer screen or on their iPad or what have you. It's happening more and more. And it's one of those things. You want our children to feel independent. You want them to think and to understand that we trust you. But there's also a need to have that conversation about how quickly you can get away from you online. You know, the, the, what it might start as very innocent can end up quite ghastly over the course of an afternoon, let alone over the course of a month. So it's just add that to the pile when we have these types of conversations. Yeah, it's it's beyond frustrating. I can't even find the right word to, you know, describe how we're feeling when this program is right there, right for the asking. It would cost cost twenty five thousand dollars for the whole province, and then along with, uh, you know, a PD day. Uh, we don't understand. We're puzzled why government is not giving this issue top priority. We're urging people to check these numbers for themselves uh, at court dockets, NL, and find out what's going on in their own communities. You know, we're we're not convinced this reluctance is really about the money. I mean, $25,000 is a bargain considering what could be achieved here. And we have a case coming up now in in court uh, September 1st, a young man, 63 charges against 53 young girls, all from the same small town. I can't begin to imagine the devastation created in that tiny community where one offender, one predator, just preyed on these young girls, some as young as five and six, and he did it for years, 
And unless people are aware, hiding our heads in the sand does nothing to address the problem. Keeping silent does nothing to address the problem. And if we're not aware of the scope and the extent, there's very little we can do about it. I appreciate the time this morning, Connie. As difficult it is, as it is to talk about, it's mandatory. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Those are the ugly topics. But the ones that are most traumatic to talk about are probably the most important ones to have. And, of course, the topic and change in the tune and bring me some good news or whatever you've got, uh, you can do it right after this break. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi there. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Um, thank you for taking my call, and I wish I could have happy news, but I don't. I wanted to talk to you about the downtown core where I live. I grew up down here. I've been here for, my goodness, over 50 years, and how much it's really changing and how dangerous it's become. I actually, 40 minutes ago, had to go out to my front door and ask a young girl what she was doing trying to break into my car. Now, between St. Clair Avenue, Cookstown Road, Duckworth Street, and Harvey Road, we have that many facilities and that, in my neighborhood, probably six boarding houses alone. And there's not one week goes by that I'm not out in front of my door picking up needles and crack pipes. And I'm fed up with it. I'm a senior. My neighbor's 93 years old. She can't even sit on her her doorstep anymore because she's too scared. And I blame the city and I blame the government because they're the ones allowing so many of these facilities and so many of these boarding houses in the one neighborhood. We're like a walkway here, which is crazy. I mean, this street is closed off probably five or six times a month with the police because there's so much going on. We have families here. We have little kids here. It's, it's you know, it, it, enough's enough. Spread it around. Now, people might say, oh, yeah, it's everywhere. Listen, yes, it's everywhere. But you don't have maybe 10 places in a block that's just, you know, helping those people. And, you know, I don't get me wrong. I understand mental illness and addictions, and I understand these people need help. But come on. I have a special needs son who was born that way. And these other people are getting more support and help than he gets. I don't know about the level of support that anyone's getting down there, but are you, are you saying that the majority of these problem areas are populated with boarding homes that are authorized, whether it be by the city or the province or anybody else, or are these just regular dwellings just so happen to be uh, have residents who are part of the problem, whether it be the drug trade and or their addiction issues or what have you? So help me understand that because it wasn't my understanding that there was a tight collection of group homes that is offering these major problems. Some of these are just private dwellings just so happen to have drug dealers living inside and there are flop houses or our homes that are dealing with prostitution or the rest because I've taken 
walk through, and it really it feels different than it ever has before. I remember being able to walk through those neighborhoods and acknowledging that there were some potential problems that were part of the community. But now it just feels and looks so, so very different. I can't imagine being a regular family, not involved in the drug trade, not involved in crime, simply trying to live your life, and you see what you see on a daily basis. It's just awful. Well, rooming houses, boarding houses, whatever you call them, I think they still have to get some type of permits from the city to be renting out five or six rooms and stuff per house or group homes or whatever you want to call them. But between Cookstown Road, Harvey Road, Duckworth Street, St. Clair, that whole block, you know, I'm on Cabot Street, and let me tell you, we are a walkway for trouble. We have young people going down, punching out poles, falling asleep in the middle of the street. Enough is enough. Some of these facilities, I'm not saying they're not good facilities, but why put them all in the one neighborhood? And I don't even really know how that works, whether there's a zoning issue that's got to be addressed, and that would be completely up to the city of St. John's. That's a fair question, though, because someone has to approve these types of lodgings or homes, whether they be bed-sitting rooms or otherwise. So I hadn't really thought about how that zoning issue might play a role here, but that's something we can absolutely dig into because zoning is the sole responsibility of the city of St. John's. So maybe, Dave, that's an angle that we can take just to see whether or not we've created a pocket that has become a major problem as opposed to trying to figure out a a, a different approach to zoning. That much I'm going to chase a little bit, see what I can figure out. I thank you very much. Have a good day, Patty. I appreciate your time. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. And if, if you're listening from somewhere else in the province, you know, look, we spoke with Mayor Jim Parsons out in Cornerbrook uh, on Friday and describes a much different circumstance in the, in the urban setting that is the city of Cornerbrook versus what we're experiencing here. And now, yes, there's crime and there's these types of problems that will be, you know, nowhere is immune to them. But take my word for it. Take some of the other residents of these types of communities or these neighborhoods that have been plagued with this level of crime and drug addiction and police presence and up and down the line. It's very, very real. And again, I was born and raised in this city. I, of course, spent a number of years in Alberta. But when I came home, which is Thanksgiving Sunday of uh, the year 2000, things have changed a lot since then. And I tell you what, in those neighborhoods, as she describes, it's much, much different. Whether they talk about on Livingstone Street or Tessier Court or the two streets that she named, you can see it and feel it by either walking through or driving through. A lot has changed. And a lot has changed for the worse. Let's go ahead and take a break right on time. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Stephanie, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Uh, This is uh, just a little concern. I was just basically wondering, like, why you have single people that have no parents in housing and you have with no kids and you have parents in a two-bedroom or one-bedroom apartment with two or three kids. Well, I guess a lot of that's just based on timing, to be honest with you, Stephanie. So if they have a wait list and they try to accommodate based on the size of the family, mobility issues and all the rest, sometimes when a property opens up, they put in the next on the list. If they don't have a client who's near the top that is more suitable to, next thing you know, you've got a bit of a mismatch. 
Yeah, no, I totally get it. No, that was just a concern I had. It's just it's the housing. I get the housing crisis. It just don't make sense to me, like, why that you have parents that are in an apartment trying to get into housing versus to a person who doesn't have kids that is just a single person could have a two- or three-bedroom house to themselves. And if you go to work, you get penalized because you, your rent gets jacked up and they're supposed to be there to help, you know what I mean? Like, but I get it, it's income-based too. Yeah, it's income-based and it's timing, but that doesn't mean that when we understand the mismatch that is out there, whether it be a single person with a three-bedroom or a two-bedroom and another family all cramped into a single unit, and whether we should just be able to, because we own and operate and maintain those homes, if we're talking about Newfoundland Labrador Housing, then to ensure we've got more people and families in the unit that's more appropriate for them. I know it can be a bit of a nuisance to be moving and those types of things, but we've got to be realistic as well, right? I mean, they're homes we maintain, making sure that people have the appropriate surroundings or the best the best approach to appropriate surroundings is something we can do whether or not anyone's actually going to entertain that because then you deal with some pretty crooked people who say for instance that single person in that two or three bedroom oh, unit no, and you have to say well, it's time to move people over that pardon me i said i dealt with some pretty contrary people over that topic i give it oh i don't doubt it <laughs> Housing's complicated. Right, you have, yeah, no problem, you have Stephanie. Appreciate the time. Take All care. Right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You know, the housing issue is extremely complicated. And just, you know, you think about what the price of a, getting into a home is. And thankfully, we're nowhere near the national average here for a single detached home, which is somewhere north of $750,000, talking national average. Add in the increase in the mortgage rates, the mortgage payments, and the benchmark interest rate for the Bank of Canada. And how many people who are currently in a rental that all of a sudden they had plans to get out, to buy a home, saving up for down payments, whether it be through the government's account or what have you, but now they're not. And so what would have been a much more natural churn of renters becoming first-time buyers and then, of course, backfilled with more renters that are coming into the market? That's kind of really been a complicated factor, a complicating factor that I don't think gets much attention. There's a lot to the housing issue, and I think I said it last week, and I think it's fair, and I'll get your uh, feedback on it, is we all understand where the authority lies, who has the jurisdictional responsibility regarding housing. And technically, no, it is not the federal government, right? It's the province, and more specifically, it's municipalities. The problem here is that, you know, when we look to the concerns of the day, and housing is one, and it's shared by people living all over the country, it's probably a political miscalculation and an unnecessary shrugging of shoulders for the federal government to simply say, well, it's not our responsibility. There was a point in time where the federal government was absolutely involved in housing issues, whether it be rentals, affordable housing, and policies put in place, whether it be with foreign ownership and all the rest. So when we have these types of issues that become as big as they are, inevitably, Regardless if, if it's civics, uh, a lack of understanding of civics and what level of branch of government is responsible for what, this will land in large part on the federal government for a bunch of reasons. One is that the federal liberals have kind of said, well, it's not, it's not our problem. It's not our direct carriage, uh, you know, some of the phrases chosen. Number two, the opposition parties are very much laying the, f uh, the blame at the feet of the federal government. That will be in the minds of folks who are following along. We don't know when there's going to be a federal election, but you know how it works. 
the messaging might be accurate, it might not be, but when it's repeated day after day, forcefully, it will get into people's minds. So there is going to be a percentage of the population that will blame the housing issue squarely on the federal government. Do they own some of the quote-unquote blame? Sure. Because if we talk some of the areas where they do indeed have policies that are part of housing-related matters, you know, it's going to be easy for an opposition party to simply say, it's the Trudeau Liberals' policy on immigration that has caused it, even though that's part of it, not all of it, part of it. You know, and it's easy enough to demonize one segment of society or another, but this will in large part be part of the conversation that the federal government is going to have to deal with. Same thing with health care. You know, basically and technically, the federal government's role here is in transfer dollars to the provinces and territories for health care. It's going to come earmarked with all these bilateral agreements that have ruled the roost over the last number of years. Basically, it's up to the provinces to get health care right. But when you say housing and you say health care, yes, there's going to be provincial elections that include both of those massive topics, and it will see either uh, incumbents holding on or to be roosted out of office, but it's going to be part of the federal campaign too. You know full well it is. And I think fair enough. It doesn't mean that you're a little bit slow on the civics front. It's very real. It's a national issue. When things are not unique to one province or another, but they're national in scope, you know it's going to be part of the campaign. And to simply say, well, it's not my responsibility as the prime minister or for opposition leaders to say, well, it absolutely is yours. It doesn't matter if that's true, accurate or not. It's going to be part of the conversation. So they're going to have to get involved in housing. They're going to have to be involved in health care. You know, we don't want the federal government. See, that's the so-called slippery slope, though, as well, isn't it? The last thing we need is for the federal government to be the authority, the group that has all the say or the lion's share of the say on either of those fronts. We just do not want that. There's a bunch of reasons why we don't want that either, right? So, yes, the responsibility lies with the provinces and and the municipalities. And we do need some guidance from up along, but we do not need them to take it over in full. That would be the absolutely worst-case scenario. Uh, let's go to line one before we get to the news. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Morning to you, Bob. Patty, I'd like to talk about uh, the decision to build a school in Portugal Cove rather than uh, Paradise. Sure. Yeah, well, what I picked up on, which always, which I always pick up on, and no one else seems to mention, thinking I'll be the good guy and I the bad guy, is that the decision to uh, extend the buses to pick up all the students. Now, the timing of that is suspect, isn't it? So one would likely think that it was done to offset the previous decision, which was a horrible decision. Which dis- are you saying that the 1.6 kilometer issue was only a, a, a decision made because of the high school location decision? Is that what you meant? Yeah. Okay. I, I don't, don't know if you agree with that or not, but it's the timing that you got to pick up on when they when they make, make announcements. What's going on previous to that? All the announcements. That's the ones I pick up on. As always, that's the case. And 
and uh, I give the electorate a bit more credit, to be honest with you, Bob. So you can do two things, and we can separate them and treat them, whether it be good news stories or questionable stories. So for me, 1.6-kilometer issue, which I think is a good decision, but as I said when it was first made, it's probably one of the easy decisions. The bigger ones out there about teachers and administrators and uh, curriculum, they're not necessarily being attended to, which are much more important than, you know, well, safety is important. Let me just add that into the conversation before someone comes after me. But we can talk about the Paradise decision or the Portugal Cove St. Phillips decision at the same time as we talk about busing, I think it's highly questionable. The data is clear. For the former school district, the priority was for high school in Paradise. And nowhere in the conversation was Portugal Cove St. Phillips. That community, some 300 students are bused out of there to high schools elsewhere. In Paradise, 1,500. So the numbers are what the numbers are. So the bus decision didn't take my eye off the Paradise story. Yeah, but it got to be said, and, uh, you know, I haven't heard it said, Patty. And uh, how are they going to implement that anyway? I always heard that uh, they tried to make room. If they had room on the bus, they'd try to uh, make room for a student that they weren't previously picking up. So it seems to suggest to me that they don't have much room on those buses. Now, what are they going to do with those extra students? Stand them in the aisle? or? Nope. I mean, uh, and they never a lot of money for it. So it's obviously a very, the first thing was despicable. The first decision where to build a school was despicable. And the offset was also despicable. It kind of, uh, you know, tells you something about this government. and. Can you trust them? Regardless of what people think of one party or another, isn't doing away with that 1.6-kilometer rule a good thing? It's an excellent thing, but, uh, you know, it's not not implementable, Patty. Not not without more buses. I'd say the school bus people are tearing their hair out now, and they don't want to say anything against the government. Why would they be tearing their hair out? I mean, more business for them is more money for them. Yeah, but Patty, how do you implement it? If you only got a marginal few more students, suddenly, and they're the ones who are going to have to incur the expense. They're going to have to buy another bus or put a smaller bus to pick up those other ones. I mean, that's not very, and there's no money allocated. And school year is only another month away or so, right? Yeah, now they did indeed have another company boss at that particular announcement where I suppose there's, you know, kind of telling the tale here is that uh, a private company is going to pick up these, not only the slack, but they'll put the buses on the road to accommodate more contracts, more money. Like, I, I get your point, but there's going to be private sector companies more than willing to take government contracts. Yeah, but, uh, but don't take away from why they're doing that now, right? Uh, it's very obvious, and I don't think anybody can deny it now or even try to cushion it, try to change it, or try to explain it. I, I don't think anybody does that, Bob. Timing is... I think you're doing it, Penny. I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you're explaining all the different, you know, how good that is and how it can be done. But uh, the fact that, you know, isn't that suspect in your mind and mostly See, that's Bob, what it's all about? you do this all the time. Listen, everybody knows that timing is a critically, carefully calculated uh, approach to politics and uh, politicians. Everybody and knows that. That's all we need to say, buddy. 
But everybody knows that, and everybody says it about everything. It's just how it goes. I mean, the same thing when we talk about a major concern that the province would have, but whatever party has government, next thing you know, they're picking a fight with Ottawa. Why? Because it's trying to distract from the other issues that they're trying to navigate. So while you say I'm doing exactly what you accuse me of, which is complete and utter nonsense, I already just gave you the numbers I about... I haven't heard you mention that you think that's a conflict, or that's a diversion. I haven't heard you say that. Pop, every decision, every announcement made by government comes have with a careful said, calculation. Have you said it, Patty? Have you said it? I just said it. I just said it. Yes, I, I, because I'm, I'm... Oh, yes, Bob, it's because of you. Because <laughs> I brought it up, right? I haven't heard you say it previously. So you're telling me of all the years that I've been doing this, I've never said that government purposefully times decisions and announcements for their own political benefit? You're, you're, is that what you're honestly trying to tell me this morning, Bob? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you, Patty. Yeah. Patty, could I talk about food for a minute? Uh, have you noticed that the quality of food, uh, you know, like uh, not only have the prices more than doubled, but uh, the food is either smaller amounts uh, 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 inferior amounts, you know, you're getting less quantity, less quality, and higher prices. I mean, have you tried to buy potatoes lately? Yes. And have you noticed that? something else I imagine. Have you noticed? The quality of the potatoes you're buying? Or? It's hit, hit and miss. I got a good bag there uh, one day last week. The week before I bought a bag, when I got it home, I was deeply disappointed. Now, I try to examine through that mesh window what I'm getting myself into, but right. most of the p- potatoes in there had big eyes and warts, and it wasn't pleasing at all. I probably lost half of it to the peeling process. But then it applies to all food. It's like you can't trust it anymore. It's very... And they go in the supermarket now, and I see people doing it. You walk around, and you come out with nothing. And if you buy a steak, you know, you have to make a down payment on it probably and get it on the layaway plan. But uh, you, you can't chew it. It's like rubber. Nothing is the same. They're like, they're, I don't know, the food is not fit to eat anymore. Well, and add to it, we're paying more for less, uh, which is something that I don't think we're ever going to see reversed. You may indeed see prices come back down a little bit, but what what was once 500 grams is now 400 grams, so we're paying more. Even when the price comes back down a little bit, if that ever does happen, which I don't see how that works either, you're not going to see some of the packaging increase to the volume that it once held. So there's tons, and I talk about groceries literally all the time, because I'm the grocery store shopper. Can I say one more thing quickly? Very quickly. Uh, Trudeau was bragging about being the one, only one of the seven G countries that's uh, 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 trying to uh, uh, offset climate change, and he's bragging about that all the time. Now, who do you think is paying the biggest price for the, uh, that that decision on his part? It's got to be Newfoundland. It's not Alberta. Alberta got their oil already in the tar sands, and they're they're going full hog. They even said last year that uh, despite that they can't seem to decarbonate, but they're making record profits. So who really suffered so far is Newfoundland, isn't it? That decision, that's... Uh, I suppose. I'm not entirely sure what you mean by the Canada or the federal liberals say we're the only country in the G7 trying to decarbonize because that's just factually not true. Uh, I didn't so. say that, Patty. I said they were the leader, the most so, right? Well, I think that's factually inaccurate as well. 
Not probably what you said, but what the Prime well, Minister said. It was said. inaccurate. Their statement on any inaccurate thing, right? They're, they're saying that they're, they're the only ones at the G7 that are doing this. And, uh, and we're the only ones suffering. I see that uh, Biden, uh, uh, per, per, uh, the United States, produced uh, more oil last year, and they're going to produce more oil next year. And uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia are cutting back oil, trying to drive up the prices. Yeah, that's always been the case. This country produced more oil last year. Well, record production, record profits uh, in Canada as well. So some of that oil conversation kind of gets lost and some facts that don't get included because that's indisputable. You know, Canadian oil companies, all you have to do is add their annual earnings and their profitability and the production numbers up, up. Not, it doesn't apply to Newfoundland. Seems to be all bad luck. Or, and I mean, you know. Okay. Yeah. Okay, then, Patty. Thanks, Bob. Okay. All bye. the best. Bye bye. Yeah, some production numbers here are off, of course, Terranova being the notable. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Rodney, you're on the air. How are you, Patty? Bye. Doing okay. You? Not too bad, boy. Only the council got me stressed out here in Mount Pearl. What's going on? Uh, for the last 25 years, I've been having sewage backup once every year. And I came back in there July the 8th. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the mayor. I have spoke to the mayor, and he's put me on to the person that's in charge of that department. So he sent out the boys with the snake. I got highly respect for the boys with the snake. But this happened for 25 years straight every year. And uh, they came, put the camera in. Uh, according to the camera, there was a squat in my main pipe where my pipe hooks into the main. And now they're giving me a run around. They sent fans all up uh, Friday to flush her out because she started to back up again. And now they're saying it's on my side, which the camera was shown, it was out on the main. They don't want to do nothing. So it's the there's a blockage. It's not a lift station issue or what have you. The thought is, Rodney, you think it's just some sort of blockage, and you're wondering where exactly it is, whether it be on your side or on the main. It's uh, it's in the the pipe is squat. There, she got a squat in the pipe where she hooks to the main. Okay. So I didn't know where else to go. I give you a call now and put out on the airways. So if try to do something. when you have the blockage or wherever it lies, they're unwilling to put a camera in to figure it out once and for all. They came. It's all they done before for over all the years is come and uh, put the snake through and clean her out. And I got highly respect for the boys that came with the snake. I got no problem with them because. They only, their boss told them what to do, just come with the snake. Okay. Their boss, their boss is the one that they want to fix this because it's going to cost the city money. Yeah. So when you have an annual event like this sort of backup into your property, what has that meant for your insurance? Now, I was going to go to my insurance because my basement had flooded out. I got the carpet ripped up. I'm in the process of ripping up the plywood, but I'm not going to do that now. 
because for 25 years, like I said, the city has more or less put me on the back burner. And it's in that department that's looking after that stuff. It's not the mayor. I got highly respect for the mayor, and I got highly respect for the boys that came out with the, with the snake through. There's nothing against them. It's their boss tells them what to do. Yeah, but of course, the boss can also take direction from council and or the mayor or the person responsible on council for public works. So I would, you know, fair enough to have respect for the mayor and other councillors or what have you, but I'd, put, I'd get them on it, on my side. The elected officials are exactly there for that reason. You've got a concern with one department or, or another, bring it to the mayor. Bring it to anybody on council who you think is the right person for the job to see if you can't get any action. That's what I would do Great. anyway. I never even talked that part, but like, I did talk to the mayor, right, and I had the holy respect for him, and he, he contacted the person that was in charge of that part. Well, I'd keep going back to that well, because if you're not having any luck, uh, any luck with a department head, then I'd keep putting on the, the plate of an elected official, the mayor or otherwise. That's what I'd be doing for sure. All right. Let me know if, if you have any luck with it, Rodney. So if you're not going to go through your insurance, you're simply going to pay the money out of pocket for repairs? No, uh, well, I would have, but since all the mental uh, stress and the, the city had put on me for not doing their job, uh, it, I want the manager in that department, I want him fired. That's what I want him done now, because uh, the runarounds and the lies he told me. Right? I'd go right back to the council table, and when you have either you get what you want or you get uh, deaf ears or no action, you let me know, Rodney, and I appreciate this. All right, Patty. Thank you very much for taking my call. You're welcome. Good luck with it. All right, take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Charlie's Place. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Justin. You're on the air. Top of the morning to you, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Best kind. How about you? Not too bad, sir. No trouble to tell, buddy. He says after the uh, after we got the regatta day under our belts, it seems like the, it's all downhill. Fall is in the air. It seems like in this way. <laughs> well, in Central, because it's actually a lovely warm day here in town. Yeah, it's not too bad. But we got a bit of the humidity now. But the last week or so, and in the night times now, it's kind of uh, the evenings are closing in. But uh, no, it's all good, boy, to, uh, you know, hopefully it heads off to a good fall. I uh, just want to take... Uh, just a brief minute of your time there, Patty, this morning to talk about the uh, the kind folks at, at WERAC, the Wilderness Ecological Preserve Advisory Council, has completed their recommendation for uh, for Charlie's Place to enact an emergency reserve, right? So this uh, this this would give us our two years now to uh, to get up on the land, boots on the ground type thing to uh, to keep uh, keep the studies going on now and down these uh, rare species of plants. Uh, wildlife, birds, insects, and all, all the all the above. So, like you say, I think uh, we mentioned before, Patty. There, uh, our last trip up there, we done three preliminary trips, and these trips are no less, you know, pretty much blindfolded trips, just walking five or six. Just let me, uh, let me interrupt for one second, Justin, just so people know what we're talking about. So, Charlie's place the concern there. This out, you know, people all the way from Gander Bay to Glenwood have been talking about the, the issue here. And if I give incorrect numbers, you set me straight. It's somewhere like 62 or 63 square kilometers uh, of, of land. And the, there's a plan by Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper to harvest wood in the area, consequently interrupting the issues that you pointed to. The flora and fauna, the lichen and the bugs and the trapping activities and all the rest. So that's what we're talking about, right? 
Yes, correct, Fetty. Yeah, right. now there is some overlapping tenures there from Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper now and, and, and mining. So, okay. you know, I mean, before uh, the environmental assessment now, I guess, uh, hasn't included any of these rare species. You know, we just pretty much went up like on a blindfolded study and, and found, you know, uh, th- three of these uh, species, uh, two birds. Uh, now there's a new species of, of lichen, I think I mentioned last time, this unique it's first time found in Newfoundland. And there's one more pending, Patty, that we haven't got results back yet. Could be another one. But uh, all this combined now is in, a, in about a 5% of Charlie's place has been searched. And we have experts in, in, in their patty with, uh, with 30 years experience, man. And, and they're saying, you know, they haven't seen a place like this in their, in their whole career. So just wanted to, uh, this, this report now, this recommendation from WERAC is going to go, I guess, to the minister, and if, if necessary, maybe to the cabinet. So he'll be making, uh, Mr. Davis will be making a decision, I guess, in order to enact this uh, this, this emergency reserve status and further, you know, because IPCA indigenous protected and conserved area would be our goal for this area in the long run, you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, I got to say a kind shout out to Patty, to uh, Halibut uh, First Nations Chief Mitchell and uh, Council and our two, uh, our two ward councillors here I just announced two uh, land guardian programs. Uh, boots on the ground is going to add to our, you know, our management file. And Patty, uh, if you want, my friend, I'm going to have to get you a copy of this. Now when we release this, uh, this uh, management file, we got support letters, man. We got all this data, and you know, signatures, petitions. You know, it's up. It's getting very lengthy now, and uh, it'd be a very interesting read. I, I guarantee you that. Yeah, a couple of things. So it's named after Charlie Francis, and his great-great-grandson, I believe, his great-great-grandson is Calvin Francis, who's the chief of the uh, Gander Bay Indian Band. Uh, And I think we may even have talked to Calvin some years back. So coincidentally, when we talk about WERAC, they were working towards the final report and recommended protected areas for a long, long time. And you rightfully point out, their recommendations are only that. It is absolutely solely the responsibility of Cabinet to adopt or to accept any of these recommendations and have uh, certain areas designated as protected areas under one band or another, or pardon me, one category or another. So we'll see where that goes. But do you have a formal recommendation in hand now from WERAC? Uh, I don't have the hard copy. No, that was only just submitted uh, Thursday gone. So okay. I'm not sure I'm not sure the timeline on this, Patty. But just to add to that now, uh, we're working on several proposals now that are geared specifically for IPCAs. One is with the WWF now. The other ones is, is actually coming out from the uh, from the federal government now. They're geared specifically for IPCAs, and they're to the tune of you know 500,000 to now it all depends on if you're chosen if your profile is chosen but like you said it, it kind of na- narrows it down the uh, criteria for IPCAs alone so this this will add to our to our two guardians it'll add to our you know because the, the locals here and our elders they got hundreds and hundreds of hours and you know they've, they've been protectors of this land since <laughs> since they've been born pretty much but uh yeah, just to get a bit of funding now, we're, we're going to be working with uh, with DFO and stuff too so for some habitat restoration up there. And uh, all these uh, four individuals that we have in Birds Canada, and we had a bio blitz there and uh, several individuals from Royal University, the provincial botanists, uh, all these people now are going to come back for a second visit now to fall. And, uh, and there's some very, very in- interested people coming down from across Canada, interested in these mushrooms and stuff that's up there. Patty, the, the species, my son, if you're ever in the area, boy, I'd have to take you up for a ride, rather be in boat or 
ATV just to have a look around up there. For sure. And for folks, you know, say, what about, but, you know, progress. We're talking progress, not flora and fauna and lichen and what have you. But there's also concerns been voiced about the impact on a couple of salmon rivers in the area. There's been concerns coming from, I believe it was Appleton, about potential impact on their watershed. So this is just not about mushrooms or flora. There's legitimate concerns about the salmon rivers and or the watershed that services the folks in Appleton. So just put that in there. Oh, yeah, for sure, Patty, for sure. And like you say, when you add the, uh, you know, just to say again, I don't want to repeat myself, but, you know, all those people in this area, that's the main reason why these two communities are built around this area, right? And, you know, from working over the years and from trapping and stuff. And we, we usually get a spare time on the weekends. That's where we're to up there in this area settling. in. It's not just for the indigenous aspect. It's for the residents. It's for the town. It's for the drink, moderate health. And to further on the uh, get the percentage of the protected areas up, because we're falling way behind from the rest, rest of the uh, rest of the country. So this would be an easy fix by, and the benefits is going to benefit Cornbrook pulp and paper. It would benefit the, the mining aspect because there's two hot spots on each side of us. That's probably going to be end up being a mine. You know, it's just protect this little area for for someone to go for next generation. Say, Patty. Yeah. Uh, last one because this is an honest uh, honest question based on the fact that i don't know the answer is there a difference between a protected area and a wilderness reserve yeah see most of these these areas now in these uh these 10 outlined by uh by where in the province now these will have to go to public consultation so you know a bit of disinformation out there happened up on the northern peninsula you know you had a lot of people threatening because because you know they didn't want to lose their cabins or or rightfully sold or their traditional ways they're hunting trap and fishing but you know in, in charlie's place i can say for an example would be you know just just to be get protected in regards to a commercial aspect you know everything is protected area wouldn't be much good to us patty around here if we couldn't hunt fish and go to our cabins right so right. i guess the public public would would have to uh, uh you know outline the uh, in the public consultation process outline uh, what what they want would want and not want in that area right fair enough i appreciate the update this morning uh justin thanks a lot Thanks for your time, Patty. Have a good day, buddy. You too, man. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go here. Line number two. Trevor, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. How you doing today? Top shelf today. How about you? Oh, I'm doing all right. Just going to the hardware store now. going to debate whether I'm going to leave my left leg or right leg. <laughs> you're going, um, you're, what is, what's the debate you're having, sir? I said I'm just I'm heading to the hardware store now to debate whether I'm going to leave my left leg or right leg. But, <laughs> yeah. That's besides the point. I I heard uh, you had a caller calling in about a uh, sewer backing up problem over Mount Pearl, correct? Yep. Now I had some dealings, kind of the same concept of what he's dealing with and I went through my title insurance now I don't know if the gentleman has that but I, I advise that if he do to get in contact and see what avenues that he can proceed with the sewer backup right Fair advice, because uh, I did ask him about the insurance uh, implications because people find out the hard way that if you live in an area where you're prone to whether it be seawater damage and or sewer backup, before long you get dropped by your insurance company. So I guess he's trying to weigh the pros and the cons of what to have you. So you're suggesting that he uh, evaluate title insurance. Yeah, because when I had something similar was I had a leak in my septic field and I had the government official come to my property from the environmental side of the house, told me that I had to fix it. Now, me being me, I got it fixed. 
and afterwards I tried to go get some money back. And long story short, if I never jumped a gun and got it fixed and was more or less served by the government uh, environmental crowd saying that this, had, this has to be addressed now, the title insurance would have kicked in and paid for all of it. Okay. I don't know if I know a whole lot about title insurance, to be honest with you. I thought it was more a commercial property thing, but you're telling me it's a residential option as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, it's, 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 it's more, it's coming more, uh, uh, what's the word about the for here? More known now because people, when you buy a property now, you, you have the option whether to buy title insurance or not. Now, title insurance, from what I was told, is good for as long as you have the property. So say if you bought a property in 10 years, you move away, then the title insurance is no longer good for that specific property that you just sold. Yeah, I'm going to do a little bit more reading because I don't, like I admitted, I don't think I know a whole lot about title insurance. I thought for the most part it was to cost cover unpaid bills associated with the property title, like taxes or mortgages or utilities, what have you. But now that you popped it into my mind, I suppose that's on my reading list for this afternoon, as exciting as that is. From what I from what I know through a bit of experiences, it'll cover any uh, like issues in regards to like has to be addressed kind of thing or okay. you know you know. Anyways, yeah, but I I'd suggest if he has it to call or if he don't, just to call and see what avenue he can get. Maybe he can have someone from the environmental office come over and do a quick little assessment and you know if it's unfit to live then. You know, the town's on the hook. But, yeah. I appreciate the suggestion. We'll pass it along to Rodney, and good luck at the hardware store. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. No problem. All the best. Thanks, Trevor. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Let's go and take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the proposed high school down in the Cove and other housing-related matters. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the leader of the NDP. He's the member for St. John's Centre. That's Jim Din. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you for having me on. No problem. I'm going to try to connect three, a uh, couple of issues here that you've spoken about and uh, uh, see if we can make sense of. So here it goes. I want to talk a little bit about housing. Uh, I know you've got a, uh, there's an article on your site there with regards to uh, the uh, housing for Ukrainian newcomers, and uh, you've brought up uh, the issue of the Portugal Coast St. Phillips uh, um, school and the uh, the 1.6 kilometer um, busing rule. So I'm just going to try to bring these in uh, into uh, maybe uh, tie them up. Housing, it's interesting, this weekend uh, past, we've received more calls, from this time from Gander, of uh, people who are facing rent increases from 600 to $900, uh, so that's a 50% increase in rent. Uh, that's, and that's, that's in addition to what we're hearing in St. John's. So 
uh, we're also hearing from a lot of uh, the Ukrainian, new, uh, Ukrainian newcomers and other people with uh, unaffordability. They're paying significant amounts of uh, rent, and I think in this story, your story t- talks about just the number, uh, just the number of jobs a person has to hold on trying to make rent. And I want to bring that to with regards to the Grace General Hospital uh, site, where they they're, they're now going to be tearing down the, uh, the hospital, and then of course is going to come down to what is that land going to be used for? When I was first elected, I had approached two uh, ministers at the time about using the Grace General the Hospital, the nurses' residence, maybe as some sort of a housing, affordable housing, non-market, uh, community-based housing. At that time, I was told, well, if we had done that. Uh, what, 10 years ago, we could have done something, but the building was at the stage where, well, right now they're going to be paying $3 million to uh, uh, tear it down. So I'm still thinking here, there's an option here, at least in the medium to short or uh, long term, to start looking at uh, that site as some sort of a uh, mixed-use or affordable housing or non-market, uh, below-market uh, housing that would sort of certainly address, uh, certainly start to help address the issues of affordability uh, for all people within the within the metro area or anyone who's moving in here. The other uh, option, I think, when it comes to housing, Patty, is I don't know if government has used it and uh, considered this group, the Cooperative uh, Housing Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, and they're very uh, they uh, they have uh, money to assist. They don't have money to buy land as such, but they do have uh, money to uh, have affordable housing options for people, so that they are not uh, that they are not uh, basically their their income is not being used up just to keep themselves housed. So, Jim, just. So just with that right. property there, who are you asserting should be responsible for using that as a potential solution to housing issues? Is it the co-op? Is it the province? What are you suggesting oh, happens there? Sorry, I'm 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 thinking here before we before I don't know what's going to happen with this land. Originally with the Grace General Hospital site, I was thinking or the nurses the nurses residence. Yeah, had, I had I had proposed I was thinking of the idea of having this converted to some sort of like whether it's low barrier shelters, affordable housing, uh, maybe rental space to community groups whatever you want, but it will be uh, run by a board, let's say, of a not-for-profits. But the idea is that this is public land, government land, so why not use this then towards uh, uh, making sure that when uh, whatever is built there, if it's going to be, rather than have it turned over to a developer, maybe to for a high-priced condominiums that we've also got to include into this, maybe something that, uh, that, uh, that that's going to allow for non-market housing or uh, below-market uh, uh, housing so that uh, you know, it's it's affordable, like rent control, I guess. If not for their, their stabilized rent, or affordable rent for those who are, who are on fixed incomes or otherwise. So there is a way of uh, there is a way of doing that. But that's I, what I'm proposing. That be okay. more or less have a plan rather than just turn that over. That's the first thing. And of course, that uh, would come down to even the municipality plays a big role there because when it. approvals are offered for whether it be condos, and we've seen this repeatedly in the past, you know, the need for developers to blend in alternatives beyond high price homes, big lots, condos, whatever, there's going to be a need to be addressed alongside of that. I wonder, is there a back of mind thought at the provincial level that that would be a plot of land if and when there's ever a replacement for St. Clair's built under the announcement, which kind of came out of nowhere and hasn't gotten anywhere since necessarily? 
And and if that's the case, and if that's the case, it goes. And I, I I've made my my views known on this. But if that's where it goes, then you've got the uh, again the St. Clair's Hospital uh, as to well what is going to be done with that building? Can that be rehabilitated? I, I guess you know what I would not want to see is a, is a building uh, stay vacant for ten years, and then the only option after that is to uh, we can't renovate it. We uh, we we've just got to tear it down. But there's I guess Patty, I'm looking at how do you make this? Uh, how do you start addressing the very serious shortages of uh, of, uh, of housing before, uh, as is pointed out in your in the, in the VOCM article, before people just give up, throw uh, throw their hands up in the air, and they move somewhere else? So I, I think this, we've got if if we want to have outside the box thinking, well, this is one option here. We've got this huge tract of land in, in the middle of St. John's, and by the way, it's not just for people in St. John's. A lot of people are moving into the district, into the city from uh, right across the province across the country so we've got to accept the fact that and the fact that students are now back into back to this uh, the uh, post-secondary institutions it's going to put a, a even tighter crunch uh, a, a crunch on, on housing here so we've got to start being uh, addressing uh, addressing this issue instead of just throwing it to well hopefully we'll get some host families and so on and so forth right so that's the uh, that's the key thing with housing for me and I think we've got to max out that plot of land and I know oh. people are you know loath to see uh, uh, traffic volume congestion because of building up versus out but just think about how it impacts your property tax we've sprawled this city out to its max if we don't build up on that property versus just pepper it with single detached homes i think we've made a drastic error we have, and from anyone I've spoken to, it's it's actually you look at the new sub, the subdivisions that move out. They're not bringing; they're actually costing the city money as opposed to bringing in the taxes. Tax oh yeah. Taxes. So I think in many ways we've got to look: how do you increase the density, and uh, and that allows for other things that uh, we can focus on too in ter- in terms of uh, public transit and so on and and and, and the like. Uh, but that's got to be addressed. Otherwise, we're not going to keep people here. And the increase in the use of shelters, and uh, like there are people who are in shelters for such a length of time, you could build a house for the price that you keep them in shelter for a year. So I think we've got to start being proactive. Well, oh, you've heard me go on about this a, a number of times, but we've got to be proactive about this and address the problem and, and not just react to it. The only other thing I want, did want to talk about is you, you brought up, I think, in a previous caller uh, with the, the, the port, school in Portugal called St. Phillips and the 1.6-kilometer busing rule. You, uh, you noted that with the new, uh, like there are other needs, other schools that are like in paradise, and I agree with you that are, that's probably a, an area that, that has a greater need for the uh, for the school. My issue, one of the key concerns I have with the uh, the new school in Portugal called St. Phillips and the fact that it's going to be uh, basically drawing uh, the students from Prince of Wales Collegiate is what effect it will will this have on the programming in both schools? And uh, I can tell you that the larger the school population, uh, the the more teachers and the more programming that you can have in a school system. If you reduce those populations by half, uh, what what effect is it going to have on the course offerings and and so on and so forth and programs that are available to students? That's a concern that I haven't heard the government address except to say that well, no, uh, programming won't be affected. I, I guess what I'll be looking for over the next year is uh, show me how that's the case, and, and more importantly, show me the data that uh, that uh, that uh, ju- that would justify this uh, that school over any other school. So those are things I'll be looking for, and I'll tie it up with this: you, the 1.6 kilometer rule is 
uh, is definitely like you know I understand the whole safety issue around that, uh, and uh, it's it's I think you're low-hanging fruit. Uh, we've still got to deal with the uh, other issues of, of uh, allocation, and if I may, I'm going to put throw this out there. Like within the city, we we have a met the metro bus. I, I think in many ways there's an opportunity here for when it comes to busing of uh, certainly of the high school, maybe even junior high, of how do we integrate the the metro bus system so that uh, we, we that that is the primary mover of students to to back and forth to school. We have a system in place. We can use that then, I guess, if nothing else, you're, you're developing a group of uh, stu- uh, young people who have become accustomed to public transit. But it's also, I would assume, that if you're, if you're expanding that system, go back to the story on, on, on Ukrainian newcomers, if you have a, an expanded uh, me, uh, public transit, regional transit, event, it also makes it easier for people to settle outside of area. That, let's say in the city, it also means that they may not have to uh, buy a, a car to get around. But if you have an efficient transportation system, an active public transit, uh, trans, regional transportation system, I think you can allow for the uh, the movement of people and maybe make it affordable on those who cannot or do not uh, or choose not to ha- own a vehicle. Uh, so I think in the long run there's, uh, there's, there are options here that, uh, that benefit everyone. Certainly with the 1.6 common rule within the city, I, I, when I grew up here we didn't get the bus, but we, we did take the metro, uh, metro bus at that time, uh, well, well, whatever it was called at that, uh, at that time. But there, there's an option here where you can uh, expand the public transit system, benefit the school system. Uh, maybe, I don't know if you save money, but you could expand the system and expand the system there for all people. Appreciate the time, Jim. Thank you. Take Take care. Bye-bye. Jim Dinn is the leader of the NDP and the member for St. John's Centre. Public transit is so very different here than it is everywhere else in the country. And a lot of it, you know, I I know there's improvements required, you know, more rapid transit routes and better shelters and better lighting and uh, better frequency on the heavily populated routes. You know, the arguments that people have made in the past. But some of it is absolutely a mindset, and you can giggle at that all you like. But if people still refer to Metrobus as the loser cruiser, then, of course, that's how people think about it. Public transit everywhere else is used by all walks of life. You can be on a bus or on a train, and I don't know, we're not going to have any trains or cable cars or anything. It's going to be buses. You can be on a public bus, someone wearing a $5,000 suit with someone who would never be able to afford a $5,000 suit. So we just have a way people think about it. And yes, it is not as convenient uh, as owning your own rig and going where you want or where you want. But for other parts of the country, they seem to do it much differently. Volume of ridership is unbelievably different than it is in and around the city. But anyway, you want to take it on? Sure. Uh, Break time. When we come back, Sharon wants to talk about the high school placement suggestion for the Cove as well. And then we're going to talk about autism awareness story time. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go to line number four. Sharon, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Morning. Happy Monday. Same to you. (laughs) Okay. I have to tell you, I am so frustrated at our premier to turn around and say that this Paradise Portugal Cove school issue is political. He is the one that made it political, nobody else. Paradise has 1,500 students leaving the area and going into Mount Pearl. Mount Pearl has a primary school, a kindergarten to grade three school that has over 700 children in it. 
So Mount Pearl has plenty of kids in that that's just one school. They have multiple schools. Mm -hmm. They have plenty of children to fill their schools. Paradise children should not be leaving. Now, for the premier to turn around and say it's political to take 300 students from PwC, which, as Mr. Dinges said, I was going to bring up as well, is going to decrease that school population, which will cut down on teaching staff, which will cut down on curriculum being able to be offered. And the same will happen with their new school in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. They don't have the student population to have it. I really don't care if every community gets a school. Good on them. But put it where the need is. I mean, all jokes aside, the school board did not have Portugal Coast St. Phillips as a priority, but they did have Paradise as a priority. So you have to be reasonable and stop making this political and really look at the facts. Now, I should let you know, I'm not a parent. I'm a grandparent. I have children in Mount Pearl, and I have children in Paradise, or grandchildren, I should say. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I am so frustrated at, at, at Premier Fury right now, it's not even funny. I get it. Uh, I spoke to this after the comments were made. Look, these types of issues, what we need to do, I think similar to how we should be approaching road work, is prioritize based on need. As simple as that. And forever and a day, Paradise was the community that people looked to. It was growing quickly. It's the fastest growing community in Atlantic Canada. 20% of the population is 14 years of age or younger. The need is obvious. 1,500 versus 300, the students being bussed out. So... It's, a, it's one of those types of answers that just tries to protect the governing party from any additional scrutiny because for a while, I mean, if we're just playing politics and we don't want to get sucked into that, but that's not true. No. We're talking about the data, the numbers. They don't lie. The district had the no. priority list that was as clear as day and now no. all of a sudden, look, I don't begrudge to call the school. And David Brazel, the member, think. has been advocating for a school in the community as well. I have, my family's yeah. from the Cove, but it doesn't yeah. mean that the infrastructure decision is sound. I've said it quite clearly. I think the school belongs in paradise. Why? Because the it numbers does. say so. The numbers say so. And God love them. Like, if they if they got the funds to put a school down in Portugal called St. Phillips as well and not do an injustice to the kids, because right now this is what's happening. Like, one of my grandchildren was in a Mount Pearl school, K to 3, with over 700, over 700 children in that school. At St. Peter's? Like, yes. Yeah. St. Peter's Primary, like over 700 K to 3. What are they trying to do to the kids? There is absolutely no way those kids are getting the right education. Yeah, it's my seven kids. Who's in Par- yeah, my, my grandson in Paradise does not need to be shipped out to Mount Pearl. Mount Pearl has the school population to keep their schools. They need to split their schools up a bit more, to be honest with you, and, you know, like change the grading a little bit type thing, right? But to take 300 from PwC and move them to a brand new school that can only provide both schools with half of the opportunity, it's ludicrous. For the Premier to say this is political, he made it political. He needs to step up. Yeah, St. Peter's is a massive school. I think there's like 10 kindergarten classrooms alone at St. Peter's. Uh, My wife was the vice principal there for a while. So uh, I have some... Yeah, I have some... And and like I say, that's one school. They have multiple schools. Oh, yes. Right? So, I mean, like, let's get real here now. Time for the Premier to, like, pull in his horns and do the right thing. I appreciate the time this morning, Sharon. How many grandchildren do you have? I have eight. You have eight? So is my mum. I have. 
<laughs> eight grandchildren. I have well, I have nine, but one is no longer with us. But eight, oh, no. and and they're all in St. John's, Mount Pearl, and Paradise. So. Not being a parent from the area, I'm well aware of what's happening in the schools in the area. So, like, come on, get with the program. A hundred percent. I'm glad you made time. I'm sorry to hear about Norwell. I ask about the ninth grandchild, but my mom, eight grandchildren, all boys, eight grandsons. Oh, no, I've got a mixture. <laughs> uh, you're probably lucky. <laughs> yes, sometimes. <laughs> Thank you for the call this morning, okay. Sharon. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Let's keep going. Will I take Leah here before we get to the news, David? Let's go to line number two and say good morning to uh, Leah McDonald. Good morning, Leah. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Hi. Hi. Uh, So I just wanted to give you a quick little call today and uh, let listeners know about a really cool thing that's happening at the Conception Bay South Public Library. Uh, this coming Thursday, August the 17th. Let's hear about it. Yes, so the CBS Library is going to be offering a special autism awareness story time. So this is for any youngsters ages 3 to 7 and their grown-ups, and it's from 2.30 to around, I would say, 3.30-ish. And this is a totally free drop-in event Uh, The children are going to hear a story, We're Amazing, one, two, three, a really cute Sesame Street storybook about autism and friendship, acceptance. And then myself and my friend Charlotte Doyle are going to do a little skit. Myself and Peter Halley have written a full play uh, about autism, and so we're going to give a little preview of that. So the play is called understanding wonderland and it kind of takes the familiar alice in wonderland storyline and uses it to explain asd to children so we're going to do a little skit with the white rabbit and alice and um teach kids about autism and i'm really excited to do this and uh i'm charlotte's excited too and it's fantastic that the library has invited us here to um get to spread some awareness and education about autism. And the spectrum is so broad. That's one thing that we always need to remind ourselves of. When you've met one person with autism, is exactly that. You've, you've met, met one person, person with, with autism. autism. I, mm-hmm. I like that line because it really spells, the, you know, speaks to the fact that the differences on the spectrum are profound. How Inside really of this, are. I think it's great what you're doing. How do you incorporate also the concept of if and when families of children with autism would like to be involved and there's the possibility for sensory overload and information overload have you factored that into how you're going to present that day yes um the cbs library is a very quiet space if there is any children that are experiencing sensory overload it's getting too much for them uh, there will be some space for them to have quieter um experience so they aren't super duper overstimulated yeah, because it's just one of those things. There's even some big businesses that have incorporated uh, hours set aside for folks, whether it be mobility issues or sensory concerns. They dim the lights and they turn off the tunes and all the rest of it. Because, you know, understanding who are people in our community that have different needs uh, is part and parcel with just trying to be good corporate citizens and or good public uh, bodies like a library. So I think it's cool what you're doing. Is Peter involved in the play or Peter just wrote the play with you? Um, Peter has written the play with me, um, and we are doing a school tour of it next year through Theater CBS. I'm hoping he may, <laughs> Peter, have made some more involvement with it when we actually get it on stage. But um, 
Yeah, he was my co-writer for the play. He's my best friend, and I thought I'd, I want to write this play, but I have no idea what he's doing, but uh, what I'm doing, rather. He knows what he's doing, so I went right to him and said, hey, I had this idea. Can you help me write it? Well, I mean, certainly Peter's been uh, providing a bunch of writing and music for performances for decades. I, I love Peter. I think he's awesome. I do, too. He's an angel. I love him. He's my best friend. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Pass along my hellos and probably leave out the love part because I don't want his head to get too big. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Would you like to tell us anything else before we take a break for the newscast? Um, I think I've pretty well covered it all. I, I hope to see lots of families out on Thursday to have some fun and uh, learn more about autism. And what's the time again on Thursday? Sure. So it's at the Conception Bay South Public Library, and it's at 2.30 uh, on this Thursday afternoon, August the 17th. Good luck with it. Break a leg, and thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye, Leah. Bye-bye. There you go. That sounds like a, an interesting opportunity. And it's, it's one of those things, you know, when we talk about the makeup of, say, for instance, a school classroom, because if this is aimed at school-aged children, it'll be very much akin to understanding the different people in your classroom, whether it be on the spectrum, and I do think there's pretty good work being done there about autism awareness and understanding the differences of people who ha- are somewhere on the autism spectrum. But, you know, when we talk about uh, self-respect and respect and empathy and compassion, some of that comes with just the very basics of knowing who your classmates are. You know, some might be coming from different neighborhoods and different socioeconomic backgrounds or different countries or have different cultures and traditions. You know, to talk about empathy probably starts with understanding who you're dealing with and who you're sitting alongside. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, mentioned off the top of the show, given some of the complications and the delay in the snow crab season, which has been extended to the end of the month, having a hard time selling cod. Ken catches cod. We'll see what's going on with him right after this. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Ken, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. How about you? Oh, the worst kinds. Uh, I thought you uh, Friday... Uh, with uh, expressing my disgust with the inshore fishery and this stewardship fishery, that we can't get clear of the fish that we can bring in. And when we do sell a little bit, uh, the grade is not very good. The grade is very bad for some people, a lot worse than mine, actually. So <clears throat> I went on open line Friday, and I told you about that. So Sunday morning, we called the buyer, who we sell to. I won't name him. But uh, and asked them, are they going to take any fish this week uh, and what days so we can make a plan, put it in nits and work around the weather and everything else. So they said, uh, we don't know when we're going to take any fish this week yet. So they, I said to them, well, why don't uh, we'd like to know, you know, we've got to make a plan, put it in nits. Are we going to take one nit to get a pounds or are you going to take it all and we put it three or four nits or whatever? Anyway, they said, uh, we might be buying fish. Tuesday or Wednesday, I think he said, uh, but we don't think we're going to take anything from you. I said, uh, well, what's the problem there? He said, were you on open line Friday? And I said, well, I don't know what business that is of yours, but in different words than that, but basically that's what I said. I don't see what business that is of yours. And he said, no need to get ignorant about it. And I said, well, yes, I was on open line. And he said, well, okay, we're done with you. Click, hung up the phone on me. 
So now I can't sell no fish to them. I can't get no ice. I've been on the phone all the morning, different buyers. Uh, they said they got their fishermen for... Can't take me. So you can't even buy ice off them? Well, that's not the... Uh, I don't know if they buy to sell me the ice or not, but the way it is, if you're selling a product to to a particular buyer, well, they'll supply you with ice, Yes, right? I get that much, yep. So uh, <clears throat> this buyer got somebody... Well, they're not here in in this area, Carbonier area. They're somewhere else. So they got somebody here weighing the fish, icing it up, and putting it on trucks and trucking it to their facility, right? So this guy is the guy we got to call and deal with. And I thought he was hired by the fish company that we sell the fish to, but apparently he's a broker. And he, I don't know what a broker means or what, what he's supposed to be buying fish off of me and giving it to them, some of them or whatever, but I got no receipt from him. I got the receipt from this fish processing facility somewhere else on the own. But he, he got the authority and the right not to buy fish from me. Tell me you're not taking nothing else. I don't understand it. So basically what, what I was told is you should shut your mouth and take what you get. Now is that the way this is going to be? You think that's right? No. Uh, I mean, and complaining about, you know, the inability to make your livelihood because of things that are out of your control seems a bit heavy-handed to simply say, well, you voiced your concern, so now we're going to punish you. Well, that's what face, that's exactly what's happening. Like, I, look, we're starting the fourth week of this fishery now. I'm allowed to land, with my license, 3,209 pounds of gutted fish a week. So that's 9,627 pounds in three weeks. So far, I got 1,760 pounds landed. That 9,000, after three weeks, if I could sell on my quota and I got grade A for it, would have been $8,856. And what I got for me fish so far is 1,302. Now, that's enough to get disgusted over it, don't you think? Fair enough. I mean, it's your livelihood, Ken. I know where you're coming from. And just so people are aware, the different price for the different grade fish is extraordinary. Grade A cod is a buck in the fall. Uh, start of the season was closer to 90 cents. Uh, grade C in the fall, 20 cents. Well, the 1,768-pound I sold uh, so far, I got 74 cents a pound average. Okay, yep. Yeah. So you had a lot of grade A there because B is only 40 cents as well. Well, I got 60% grade A, 20, uh, 30% B, and 10% C. Okay. And I don't even know how that's become about because I was looking after the fish like it was my own child. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, because I, I, I think I, you I said, Ken, a, that you leave the nets in the water for a very limited amount of time, slush right away, and straight into the, into the dock. Yes. Okay. I mean, from 6 p.m. in the evening, the nits are in the water, and the next morning, 10 o'clock, is gone out of my hands. It's in the buyer's hand then. So, <laughs> well, it can't be too much. Coming aboard the boat live, that's all I can say, and we believe it's one of the lives. One issue I think that it was you that okay. mentioned it, uh, that I was fo- trying to follow up on, and we will indeed hopefully get someone from the uh, ASP on, is the question being asked that whether or not you have a crab license that sells to that plant as, you know, as if that has something to do whether or not they're willing to buy your cod. Well, last year, after I got a, I got a grade I wasn't satisfied with either. That was a different buyer, by the way, a different buyer. That's why I that not with that company this year. I went to another company to try to get you know a better grade. So 
that's not working out either. But I went to another buyer last year, and I said, look, i got some fish here. Will you want to take that off my hands or what? Said, First thing he asked, how much quota do you, how much crab quota you got? I said, I don't, I got no crab quota. I don't even have a license. He said, well, if you've got no crab, we can't take your fish. With no explanation. I still can't get an explanation for that. Why? They're buying fish from somebody right next to me, but they can't buy mine because I don't have a crab license. Now, that's... Anyone that got anybody listening there knows the reason for that. Please let me know. I mean, you can have my number if he wants to give it out over the phone. I don't or the radio. I don't care. But somebody got to tell me why that's why why he won't buy fish if I don't have a crab license. I I don't know. I can't make heads or tails of that to be honest with you. Which is why I'm trying to ask someone who's in the processing sector as the rationale behind that question because I I I would have wouldn't even know where to start with trying to answer that one. So on the wharf yesterday morning, when I asked a buyer about taking this, uh, how much fish you're going to take the week, he said, no, I'm not taking anything from you, click. So another guy was there, another fisherman, he called the same thing, and they, they had a fallen out, so he, he's not selling, they're not taking it from him anymore. So he do have a crab license. Now, this is another scenario. This, two boats in Harbor Grace, one tied right directly behind the other, two buddies, they went out together, they set their nets together, almost on top of one another, he told me. They came, they hauled them the next morning together, they came in, and they offloaded at the same time. And their fish went on the same truck to the same buyer. One feller got 97% grade A, the other one got 20% grade A. Confusing stuff. I, uh, I admit that freely. It's always confusing when we talk about issues inside the fishery. Uh, anything else, Ken, before we take a break here this morning? No, well, I, I emailed, uh, I sent a message to Ken McDonald. Uh, it might get back to me sometime next winter, probably. Terrence uh, Rogers is not my representative, but I'm sure there's people in Trinity and Bonavista Bay in the same situation. Although I don't hear much about it uh, in the, on the radio or in the news or nothing, but I'm sure there's people having the same problem as I got. Well, I got the worst problem now because I spoke up and now I got no buyer. And I can't even, I don't even say I'm allowed to go to the food fishery now. Yeah, and the processing sector is pretty much provincial jurisdiction, so you should throw the minister responsible provincially into the mix of politicians you're looking to speak with. Well, I emailed uh, Steve Crocker this morning and I emailed to him. There was no one else to call on him. Jesus Christ himself. I don't know if he's taking calls. I appreciate I appreciate the time, Ken. I have to take a break, but stay in touch. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much. Welcome, bye bye. All right, uh, let's take a break here. Gail wants to talk about home care or daycare, maybe. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Gail. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Um, I have an autistic child, just, grandchild. Just one second, Gail. We have a, an awful connection. Okay. Hello? That's better. Okay. Now, I have an autistic grandchild, and uh, I had 30 hours all summer a week, and 30 hours in Christmas a week, and 30 hours at Easter, and 10 hours during school months. And I'm having trouble trying to get anyone to do 30 hours. One girl comes here for 10 hours a week, does as much as she wants. I got her 13 hours one week. That was it. That's because I was going to a concert. I got an extra three hours. It doesn't seem like anybody wants to work. And, sir, you're looking at 17 or $18 an hour. Not even minimum wage. It would be a well above minimum wage. And so you've been getting home care workers from a private agency, I assume? 
No, no. I uh, was uh, just a young, a young girl that uh, hired privately. Okay. Now my social worker was supposed to go to the agencies, but then she went on holidays, and I haven't heard back from her yet. And she's supposed to be back today. So is the inability to get someone to work the 30 hours, I think is the number used, because you, you, you say they don't want to work, or is it particularly <laughs> challenging? It's looking, so it seems like nobody wants to work these days. I mean, I don't know. Everyone in my circle is all working, um, and my children. So is it... Is part of the conversation here is that it's a challenging circumstance to work with the grandchild? Well, nobody has even tried. Nobody's even come for an interview and tried. And so where are you posting this potential job opportunity? In Harbour Grace. Okay, and so you just use... I mean, I'm willing to take anyone from anywhere that's willing to travel. Okay. Yeah, now, some people might think you need some f relatively specific training or education to provide adequate uh, child care or quality child care for a child with autism, it's depending on where they are on the spectrum. I mean, you could be dealing with a child that has very mild c concerns that are easily navigated all the way down the spectrum to something that could be really quite challenging. Oh, yes, I understand that. Yeah. But he is pretty much under control. I've worked with him all summer myself. Okay. I had no one to come in and help me. I had to do it all myself. And what does he like to do? Pardon me? What, what does he like to do to spend the time during the day? What does he like to do? Yeah. Like go outside or read books or oh, color? Oh, yes, he or? likes to go outside. He loves reading books. He likes to go to Walmart. He almost got me broke going back and forth to Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he just likes to be outside a lot. That's and the right when place for you. Well, you know, I tried to comfort him by keeping him in because I don't want him out in the rain to get sick or anything. Of course. So I keep him in, and he reads his books, plays with his iPad, things like that. He's not by any means uh, a beast or anything like that. When I know the people think that a child with autism is rough and hard to handle and whatever. Yeah. This child is very much controlled. Yeah, that I needn't done, be the I've case. I've worked with him a lot since school closed. Okay. So, do you want to just like give out your number if anyone in and around Harbour Grace is interested in taking this job for the 17 or $18 an hour? I can't find nobody. Well, do you want to I give your number out here? I'm it and putting it on the internet and everything. Okay. I can't, I'm not getting no responses, sir. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, David has your number. If someone says, well, I'm looking for work, and that rate of pay sounds good to me, and I'd love to uh, give it a shot and go meet Gail and the, and the child. So we'll share your number if they call us. How's that? Oh, that sounds great, sir. Okay, you're welcome, Gail. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's keep you going with some housing. Uh, and this lady joined us on line number five. will absolutely understand zoning issues when it, as it pertains to the city of St. John's as being a former councillor, because that was one of the concerns brought forward by a caller earlier in the program, is that there's very much a concentration of sitting room homes and or group homes in one spot in town, and consequently the thought is that maybe that's leading to some of the issues that they're seeing in their neighborhood. Join us on line number five as housing advocate Hope Jameson. Good morning, Hope. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you doing? I'm best kind this morning. How about you? 
I'm very well, thank you. Sunshine's good for you. Tis that. You know, and sometimes when we talk about bylaws and zoning and stuff, it can be pretty dry. But when it all comes to, uh, when push arrives at shove, it's the be-all and end-all for what your neighborhood and the makeup of your neighborhood looks like. So when someone's concerned with emergency shelters or bed-sitting homes or what have you, how does zoning work? Okay, bear with me because it it will be dry, I promise. Um, So in the development regulations, there are discretionary uses, which means you get a notice in the mail, it goes to a vote of council, and there are what are called permitted uses. And in most of the zones where um, boarding houses, rooming houses, and often buildings that get used as as emergency shelter uh, are allowed, they are a permitted use. So that's something that would just be a staff level approval. Um, I remember having residents say, well, I got a notice in the mail about a bakery going in around the corner, but nothing about this. Why is that? This is the reason. So um, there are a number of different residential zones where it is a permitted use. Uh, to operate an emergency shelter, they usually fall under the boarding houses part of the uh, the development regulations. If I'm remembering correctly, now don't quote me on that because it's been a minute. Um, but that's why these things tend to sort of not uh, be something that people are aware of until there's an issue with them. And you would think the smell of freshly baked bread would be different circumstances uh, impacting <laughs> the neighborhood than maybe emergency shelters. And look, I get sometimes that the whole nimbyism will play into these reactions that we hear quite often. So when the zoning applications are looked at, is there a concentration uh, concern or concentration focus given? Because we know what that can mean so far as potential problems. Not to say every group home or emergency shelter or bed-sitting home is going to bring problems, but they might. So is there a concentration issue uh, considered during the process? So I don't, I don't know that that, because this doesn't come to council, right? So that's an important thing to note is that this happens at the staff level. And if it is a permitted use, then that doesn't go through the same level of scrutiny as something that requires a different level of approval. Um, and, you know, in some cases, if it just conforms to the zoning requirements, there's not a great likelihood that someone is keeping track of where each and every one of these uh, kind of buildings are located in the city so i recall having residents say well you know somebody's putting these in these places because they think that we're not going to make a fuss and i I can assure you that that's not the case um it is not uh so organized as that to be honest i I think that it's just a matter of the the application comes in it conforms to the requirements and so it's it's allowed to to take place and i will say too that i think it's it's much less an issue often of um location and more an issue of making sure that the adequate supports are in place that um the residents in these sorts of uh of shelters have that they need in order to to do well in these neighborhoods that's exactly where i wanted to go because you know with the appropriate supports and oversight or monitoring whatever the right word is is that when that's in place the likelihood of there being problems is vastly reduced and i think that's more more the shortcoming than it is the actual geographical footprint of a home Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, you know, in my neighborhood, there is um, an emergency shelter that went in earlier this year. Um, I didn't really know that it was happening, again, for reasons already mentioned. Um, I just am aware of these things. So I I look at the goings on and go, oh, that's what that is. Um, And hasn't caused any sort of problems with us at all. It's across the street and down like a couple of houses and uh, we've we've barely noticed it other than there's some folks outside oftentimes. But like uh, when there are conditions that set people up for success, these things can exist fairly seamlessly. Um, and I'm 
absolutely an advocate for mixed income communities where we interact with people who are different from us. I think that that does a lot to foster social harmony. Um, it's it's just a matter of creating conditions where everyone can do well in a neighborhood living together. What does that take? What does that mean? So I think mostly there's there's been a great reliance on the private market for providing housing in general and emergency center shelter rather specifically uh, for some time. And I think that you know requiring more of that system in the sense that you know we're giving people adequate supports and not just attaching heads and beds to a, a paycheck paid to a private landlord um, would be an excellent step toward fostering uh, healthier communities for everyone so I would point to that as kind of the primary thing that I would look for in terms of changes to the system there um, we also we spend a lot a lot a lot of public money on private shelter and I think, you know, that is serving a need right now that would go on that if we weren't doing that. So we need to keep that system in place while we build something different that focuses more on holistic supports and long-term housing for, for people who need it. When we talk about affordable housing, it, it, it can be misleading because what's an affordable housing concern in your mind might be different in my mind. It might be different for someone uh, based on socioeconomic reality. It might be different for seniors. So I think we've got to do a better job in breaking down the affordable housing envelope to a bit more bite-sized morsels because the way we currently talk about it, the catch-all is enormous. Absolutely. Well, I, I said to Dave, I'm, I'm making a presentation right now about sort of what is the housing crisis. And we have over 45,000 households in Newfoundland and Labrador who are living in housing that is unaffordable, unsuitable, or inadequate. So there's not enough rooms in the house, or the house is falling down, or the people in the house are can't afford to live there. Um, and that that's, you know, that's a substantial portion of the population. That number is staggering when you think about it. And a lot of those households, for example, 13% of single mother-led households are in unaffordable housing. 10% of households led by people over the age of 65. So we need to think about, you know, demographics, but also about income and also about, you know, when it comes to emergency shelter specifically and, and the reasons that people become homeless, those are complex and they require more interventions than just the availability of housing for people to be able to maintain and thrive in housing. You know, I guess there's a, the numbers of units available will have a direct impact on associated costs because with no controls in place, people will get what they think the market will bear. So when we talk about affordability, you know, because my home is worth exactly what someone's willing to pay for it, but there's a different mm -hmm. conversation to be had, for instance, about rent and or purpose-built housing. So where do we start on the rent front? Because I, I just don't see a simple solution. People just say, we'll put in rent control, but then that's moving target on what would be a legitimate increase in rent based on Bank of Canada rates and the availability in the market. So how do we start an affordability conversation in the rental world? I mean, if we're talking about rent control, I'm going to ask you how much time you're going to let me have because it's a very <laughs> complex topic. Uh, but, you know, we have we have none right now you have to give a six month notice and that's it i will note as well that the eviction notice period is half what it is for a rental increase so there's an incentive to turf existing tenants right there um, because you could immediately charge them uh, more than what you're charging your existing tenants but thankfully we have a bit of a blank slate to work with here so i think the first thing to remember is that housing as a necessity of life doesn't follow what we usually consider like supply demand dynamics so it's it's not just if there's less supply than we 
increase the cost if there's you know the opposite of that then the opposite is the case um because people in general cannot voluntarily opt out of having a house so you're going to pay whatever you have to pay and you choose to cut other things in your budget right like paying the heat bill or groceries um so that's the significance of the issue that we're talking about here but of course there is a lot of caution that i hear about disincentivizing development when we have a supply issue through rent control hope you know what i want i want to talk about that because i think there's an example in the province of ontario when you look at timelines bob pre-rent mm-hmm. control and post-rent control there are numbers for, worthy of discussion I know you're a busy woman Dave wants me to go to the news break it's impossible to put you on hold and pick up where we left off for in a couple sure. of minutes yeah okay. absolutely let's do exactly that you know the, the issue with rent control rent control without vacancy control is meaningless it, it truly is. So Dave is my tenant. I give him the notice. I kick him out. I jack up the rent beyond the rent control parameters of, say, for instance, in PEI, it's 2.5%. But I make it 10%. Why? Because there's no vacancy control. Uh, so we'll pick up the housing conversation with Hope Jameson right after the news. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's rejoin Hope Jameson on line number five. Hope you're back on the air. Hello, Danny. Welcome back. Okay, so we just started to go down the road of rent control, which I think has been kicked around in this province for a long time, has never come to bear. Can rent control work without vacancy control? Because with the current process in place as the landlord, I can, over time, get rid of a tenant and then jack up the rate outside of the rent control parameters. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're operating without any sort of uh, cap on how much you can increase rent at all. So even within an existing tenancy, as long as you give the required six months notice, you can raise the rent as much as you want. Sure. Um, but you are correct that if there is a cap on increases within an existing tenancy, but not in between tenancies, that gives landlords an incentive to kick out their existing tenants so they can charge more, especially in an environment where the market dynamics are changing really quickly, where we see increased interest rates going up, municipal taxes increase, all of these things have an impact on how much landlords charge in order to make the business case for operating a rental make sense. So, you know, the great thing about being here in this regulatory vacuum as it exists with no rules in place is that we can learn from other people's mistakes, which is great. So what we see if we look around the country um, is that when we have that that gap in between tenancies where, where landlords can do whatever they want, that makes eviction more likely. Um, but in places where that control follows the same unit in between tenancies, that has a, a sort of a mitigating impact on how quickly we see changes in rental rates. So, for example, uh, Ontario doesn't have that, um, whereas Quebec does. Quebec, in general, has much more affordable housing than Ontario does. So it works, right? We can watch that happen from over here. But there are great lessons that we can take from some of the things they have in Ontario when it comes to the increases that they do allow. So each year, um, a board sets a percentage increase for the year based on factors like uh, how much it costs to do repairs, what interest rates are doing, what taxes are doing. So they look at all of those factors and they set a rate. And a landlord can apply for what they call an above board increase. So if they want to increase the rent more than that percentage, they can apply to do so and get approval based on things like I've done major renovations or other factors have changed. So you have to make a case for why that's justified, but you can make it so that if there are costs that you've incurred as part of running a rental, you can get those 
absorbed by your tenants as landlords are wont to do. So, you know, when we don't do that, that again is a disincentive to people operating rentals, which for now we're really relying on the private market to provide a lot of rental housing. And we have been doing that for 30 years. I don't think that we should stick with that as a as a policy choice we've we've been doing that for 30 years and now we have a housing crisis surprise um but while this is where we are we need to make sure that tenants have some sort of predictability in terms of what the rental market is going to do um and we don't want to disincentivize development. Like I said, CMHC said we need to build 5.8 million new homes in Canada uh, to assure housing affordability over the, the sort of near term. That's a massive body of work that we have to get everybody pulling on. So it's important to apply things like rent control in a way that makes it still make sense to operate from a business perspective, uh, rental housing while protecting tenants. Yeah. Interesting number that 5.8 million by 2030. In essence, mm-hmm. what that means is building more homes in the next seven, eight years than we have in the last 50. I mean, it's wild. We don't yeah, even have people to build massive. them. Yeah, really, that was just in terms of like the labor pool. There's a lot of work to be done there. And, you know, when we understand that so much in terms of like population growth, economic development, all these things really rely on people being able to have a place to live that they can afford, the challenge becomes that much more intense. Let's get your thoughts, your opinions on some of the thoughts that people offer about rent control. Number one, rent control will see an eventual erosion in the number of rental units available, consequently will push housing prices higher um so if we look at again we can we can look elsewhere we can look outside ourselves for this and if you tell me that there's not an incentive to develop rental housing in a vancouver or a toronto um i would say that's demonstrably false you can look at the numbers and and say like nope these rental markets are in fact growing um it's i mean there are a number of other factors that are leading to uh higher rents in those places mostly you know in vancouver it's about geography largely and about population growth outpacing uh the pace of development which is a problem throughout Canada, which has a lot to do with, you know, speaking of municipal zoning, we've been religiously uh, connected to the single family home as the only kind of development, which surprise increases your cost when it comes to housing. Um, So, you know, one of the things that I will harp on day and night with this housing stuff is it's really important to look at a number of different factors when we're talking about what's driving housing costs. So we can't just say rent control equals uh, housing cost increase. I would say that we can look at the pace of development in other places where rent controls are in place and go, nope, that's, that's not true. Fair enough. And that's why, you know, in the vacuum that we're speaking in, you know, comparisons to Toronto, Vancouver, New York, I mean, half of the rental units in New York are rent control. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if they can pull it off in a city of 10 million people with certain complications associated with it, and, you know, super overheated markets like Toronto, Vancouver, don't reflect the reality in Atlantic Canada, nor the reality mm-hmm. in this city, say, for instance, specifically. Uh, before I let you go, one quick question about accessible housing. You mm-hmm. know, when we build affordable, that doesn't mean we've necessarily built accessible where does that fall into the priority list oh it absolutely has to be a priority we have um and i would say this is a a low estimate they say about 10 percent of people have accessibility needs at the moment we have an aging population we can expect that that will increase and when we're looking at new development the cost of developing accessible housing incrementally so like the percentage that it costs more uh conventional versus accessible when you're building new is a lot lower than when you're trying to renovate something on the back foot. So as we're looking to new development, I think we would be very wise to be building accessible
accessibility features and universal design features as much as possible into any new development, knowing that that demand is going to be there and is going to increase over the long term, um, and that those costs will be lower if we do it now than if we try to do it later. Yeah, universal design has proven itself to be uh, financially sound. Like even if you don't have mobility concerns today, it doesn't mean you're going to live in that home forever, or, nor does it mean you'll never develop a mobility or accessibility concern that the initial uh, drawings and engineering and construction can accommodate. There's massive mm-hmm. costs down the road for any retro type of fit. Uh, last thoughts uh, to you, Hope, before we let you go. Yeah, I think it's important for us to remember that these issues are complex. Um, But I will say that at this moment, as someone who's been in this work for a long time, I think that more and more people are being affected by housing issues, which gives us an opportunity at this moment to make this something that can't be ignored. Because we know that solutions take time. So it's very important for everybody to be making their elected officials aware that this needs to be an urgent priority starting right now. We talk a lot about housing crisis, but we are not acting like it's a crisis, right? Crisis means we take urgent action right now. Um, So I would encourage everyone to keep the foot on the gas, to make sure that this stays top of mind um, as we're we're two years out from a couple of elections. So I think we need to to keep the conversation going this whole time. Yeah, that's it. And that was a lie. That was the last question. This is the last question. The federal government's (laughs) kind of shrugging their shoulders at it because technically it is not their responsibility. But when things are labeled a crisis, people will absolutely look to federal parties for some type of intervention or policy guidance. What do you think the Fed's responsibility is here? Well, now we have the National Housing Strategy, and I think everyone in the housing world, yes, there, there's been a National Housing Strategy since 2017-18, um, and that the government is required to have a National Housing Strategy moving forward because of the National Housing Strategy Act. But again, speaking of things not acting like a crisis, a lot of that is about funding the construction of housing and those funding programs. You know, their, their average application timelines are often in the 400 days range, so more more than a year to get a yes, you can have some money to do this. And those subsidies when it comes to development are a lot of what makes housing affordable long term. So I think getting that money flowing faster and to more community organizations is an essential part of the puzzle and absolutely a federal responsibility. Appreciate the time this morning. Hope. Thanks a lot. Of course. Yeah, have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there we go. Informative uh, conversation. Final break of the morning. Daryl, you're next to talk about the roads. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Daryl, you're on the air. Well, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad. How about you? Uh, oh, good. Thanks. Uh, add to the mix to your last caller there. Uh, she brought up a lot of good uh, points, but uh, you probably might need controlled municipal taxes and controlled interest rates. <laughs> uh, bottom line is we're in a terrible mess. But, uh, Patty, well, I want to talk about the roads. And uh, you had a couple of callers on your show there Friday. Um, one, I think, had a lot of damage done to the vehicle, $800 worth of tires. And uh, another lady called in from the Ghoul and uh, prompt me the call to add to it because uh, I know myself now I lost uh, three hubcaps off my vehicle <laughs> due to uh, all that stuff as well and the uh, roads are deplorable in uh, a lot of parts of the island but uh, what needs to be looked at is like uh, what I don't understand like you go through a federal riding like the Terranova Park or whatever seem like when they do pavement there lasts us for forever uh, versus the provincial part of it so I don't know what the standards are but uh, what we got to look at as well 
uh, in a lot of jurisdictions, Ontario and those places, to use what you call recyclable tires. And with the recyclable tire, what happens when, when you use that for mixing for the paving is that uh, when, like, the frost heaves the road, whatever, the recyclable tire, it will go with the frost. So in actual essence, you don't have hardly any damage to the road or no potholes. So maybe we got to be a bit innovative and start looking at uh, technology that way. So I don't know what's happened to our uh, our tires here in the province. I'm not sure. I think they did ship it off somewhere in Quebec. But why not take the recyclable tires and use them and put them to good use, like uh, like towards the, the road work? We just the, saw the, the opening of a tire recycling plant. I believe it's in CBS. Okay, that just opened recently. Okay. Yeah. So we're not sending the tires out any any longer, which is... I mean, it's just sensible, right? We were actually paying someone to take the tires, and then they were recycling and making money on them, creating different products. So, thankfully, right, we've right. given that up. Well, that, that's the, and and that's a good thing. I'm glad to hear that. But uh, but that's what you want to look at innovative ways. I know it's been done in Ontario. Uh, so why not use recyclable tar for the uh, for the roads? And apparently, it's supposed to alleviate a lot of the problems. So I think we got to be start being more innovative and and creative that way. Because a lot of times, if you, it's no good to do roads and like even municipal, and then seem like uh, after a year or so, like it, it's not lasting no more. So whatever's happening there so i think uh, the government's going to bring on like inspectors like if you got contractors doing the roads make sure it's done right so why would the federally part of it last longer than the provincial part there's something gone wrong there but also we got to be innovative and look at like recycled tar for paving i mean the roads will last longer and apparently you don't get no potholes like i was saying like the road goes with the frost and no hardly any damage as such compared to what we're having now so uh look at that way and, and look at the cost saving in the long run as well well we've done different chemical compound tests i don't know if that's included anything regarding uh any rubber from a recycled tire but there has been different right. compound tests we've done pilot projects at night i was a little bit surprised to find out what they're telling us was the result of that pilot is that a cost 30 percent more when are they actually spending 30% more in other jurisdictions where they do pave at night on the busy busy roadways and by highways and byways? So I've never really understood that. Yeah, I, yeah, I've heard that before too. I, I don't understand that concept either because if, if you're doing the road like nighttime versus daytime, what would be extra cost? Well, yes, you need probably lighting and so forth and all that stuff. For sure. But, uh, but, uh, but I think in the long run, a lot of places they do do it. I think it is a lot better because during the daytime, especially tourism season, you're not holding up traffic and uh, delays and so forth. So, like I said, we got to go back to being innovative and creative and uh, and open-minded to everything in general. So uh, maybe to come to the road works, uh, just what we got to look at, like recycled tar, or maybe there's other technology out there that could be for the better too. I mean, got to be something there that I mean, why is the roads crumbling and falling apart and not lasting uh, at no length of time at all when you look at it? So uh, I think that we get, uh, the government's going to have to take a good hard look at this and. Because right now it's costing them millions and millions of dollars now what they're doing this year. And I think another problem, too, I think personally, this is my own personal opinion, I think Muskrat Falls got us bankrupt. And there's hardly no money for anything, too. So we, we got major problems in general. <laughs> yeah, well, the implications of Muskrat, we haven't even felt them yet. Uh, but there was, of course, a couple of billion dollars worth of cash, if I remember the numbers correctly, that went to uh, towards the project. But the real implications there, and Muskrat won't bankrupt the province. Muskrat may indeed lend, uh, lend itself to bankrupting 
people. But uh, right. yeah, we're going to pay. Well, uh, and that's not even the end of the story when we talk about our power bills. I read an evaluation of things like the clean fuel regulations uh, on Saturday night. That's how exciting my life is. And they're <laughs> talking about another 15% on top of everything else, regardless of where you live, regarding clean fuel regulations, if indeed you're getting any of your power from a fossil fuel generated plant. And that uh, actually they extended that to include coal. So there's major power implications add to it if we're going to do the amount of electrification that they're talking about nobody but nobody incorporates what it's going to require and the billions of dollars required to expand the grid to all of these things because we've kind of lost sight of a lot of things here and that grid complication the numbers of electrical engineers and the billions of dollars for overhead wires not even part of the conversation yet uh, yeah and no you are right patty and and, and we are losing our way and you are right in what you're saying they're all like all this money going out the door and then they're talking about more tax on top of tax i mean people only got so much money yeah i mean so i mean what's going to happen i mean personally the bottom got to fall out of it we can't keep going going way we're going like can't keep putting tax on top of tax tax on top of tax and uh, let you know well you're going to retract the economy and and then it's, it's going to be further domino effects that's like now, for example, you look at the government now, uh, uh, the interest rates want to bring down inflation. Now, it's going to be another announcement, I think, tomorrow. So on one hand, you got an employer saying we need people to work, but the government of Canada or the, 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 the governor of Bank Canada saying, no, 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 we can't do that because we got to slow the economy. Yeah, no, inflation so, is largely under control. Now, I know it's not 2% that everyone yeah. uses as the magic number, but right. it came down pretty quick. I think the, the complications with inflation is that you don't really feel it, right? Because some of the things that we use every single day, whether it be fuel for your vehicle or the price of food, that's what people are feeling pinch you know increase yeah. in rent increase in getting into a home some of the larger broad strokes of inflation i mean it's come back to earth it's what 3.4 percent if i remember correctly was the last numbers we've heard so uh, you can only hope the bank of canada doesn't go hog wall with their 11th straight increase uh, last uh, last word very quickly yeah. Darrell, before i go yeah, well, it was 3.4, then it dropped to 2.8%. So uh, yeah, uh, I think the next interest rate announcement is going to be September the 6th, so we'll see what they release. But, but what's driving everything now, you look at the carbon tax, clean energy tax, uh, on top of the fuel and the regular cost of fuel, I mean that's that's what's got to drive it now. And, and I mean I don't know where it's going to end to, but uh, there got to be uh, got to be some control put to all this. As uh, either that is going to be devastation. That's how I look at it. I appreciate the time. You were right up against twelve o'clock. That's Daryl. Okay, great. Thanks again for your time, Patty, and all the best to you and staff at VOCN and your listening audience. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Take right, care. Bye-bye. All right, we are indeed out of time, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a nice, safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.